This episode, Justice League International number 19, cover dated November 1988. Welcome to the 19th episode of Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire Martyr Podcast Network. My name's the Irritable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not flying solo. Every single episode, I will feature a different guest host. My co-host today is another real-life, walking, talking, comic book professional. Not only is he walking and talking, I hear he can chew gum at the same time, too. But I'm not sure I believe that. Today, we are joined by the amazingly talented author of the young adult series, The Only Living Boy, and the werewolf western series, High Moon. Plus, he's done work for DC Comics, Marvel Comics, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, Harris Publications, McGraw-Hill, and many more. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. David Gallagher. Welcome to the Embassy, David. Thanks for being here. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Shag. I'm really surprised you didn't mention that I authored the Green Lantern Corps for DC Comics. No! Um, because, you know, I figured that's why you brought me on. This is this is clearly a, a Guy Gardner love fest, and I thought you'd bring, like, the best author or one of the best authors of Guy Gardner here to talk about how amazing he is. That's absolutely why I brought you here. I just thought that maybe perhaps that was implied, you know, sort of in, in the open. <laughs> to be fair, I didn't mention everything you've ever done. I mean, you've done a whole bunch of things. Just because I left that one off, I, I didn't talk about how you've done stuff for the Winter Guard or how you have written a spec script for Misfits of Science. I mean, I didn't go into any of that kind of stuff. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate like that you didn't mention my social security or my mother's maiden name. Um, I'm saving that for the feedback. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the Justice League International, and I think it's a real honor to be here and, and talk about this great series. Well, before we dive into it, I wanted to touch base with you as, as a comic book writer, as a professional, as someone who's actually written a character in this book. You know, what is it that brought you to comics? What, what, what made you fall in love with it? The very first movie my parents ever took me to see was Superman in 1978. And it, nice. And it had, it had such an impact on me and like the second movie they took me to see was like fox and the hound okay but the third one was superman 2 and so <laughs> like i grew up in this this very i don't know larger than life mentality of, of heroism like where right makes might okay and i think that that was really reinforced after superman because we would have the george reeves and the Adam West and the Linda Carter shows, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman running in reruns while like the new adventures of Batman was playing on CBS. And it was like this weird 70s era of superheroes. Thing had his own show teaming up with the Flintstones, you had the Super Friends, you had the Shazam, Isis Power Hour, the Super Seven, Flash Gordon. You had this whole era of animated superheroes who really came to the screen with not just like great powers and, and great abilities, but also this great responsibility to the, the culture that they served. And that became sort of a, a secular belief or a secular way for me to really sort of model my behavior. So I was always sort of driven to the heroic, driven to a life of public service. And so I grew up on all these characters. And like, even when I was younger, I knew 
that I wanted to write comics. So like in second grade, when they give you those that paper to write on, you know, it's got the big space that you oh, can yeah. color oh, yeah. stuff and then a giant big pencil you write underneath your picture. So I would be like, Green Lantern and Superman and teamed up to fight Lex Luthor. And my teacher, Miss <laughs> Anderson, was like, that's not a real job. You can't do that. Those characters aren't real. Uh, so I've like really spent my whole adult life trying to prove her wrong. It's like, yeah, this, these characters are real and they matter to people. It, it sounds weird, but but it's weird to see how much these characters and, and we see it all the time in the, the modern movies, how much these characters mean to to people, how much, you know, it gives people something to believe in. And so, you know, when I was in college, you know, I interned at Marvel Comics. I worked on a slew of digital comics and eventually got to do the same thing at DC and Comixology and Amazon. And, and now I make adventure books with, you know, my studio partner, Steve Ellis. And it all comes from that that same place of adventure and, and heroism and that idea that right makes might and sort of trying to overcome adversity with tenacity and cooperation. And, and that's a, that's a lot of fun. So when I think about writing for comics, that's what I think about wonder discovery, the fantastic, like discovering new phenomenon. I think of things like thunder, the barbarian or Johnny quest, things that really speak to the adventurer and all of us. That's why I love comics because it's this whole world of wonder. And, you know, I don't need batteries to power my comic book. I can, I can't fit my TV in my back pocket to like, <laughs> you know, you know, and what's great is that these, these stories live with me. Even after I've read them, the, the morals and the values and the lessons I've learned from them and the adventures, you know, they, they teach me and they inspire me. And I hope, you know, as a writer of comics now, I, I hope to tell the same sorts of stories, the stories that inspire other people to seek a life of adventure and find new friends and, Beat the bad guys and conquer monsters. Well, after reading some of The Only Living Boy, I mean, give it 15 years, and there's going to be young adults having these same sort of conversations, citing Only Living Boy as their inspiration, I think. Oh, thank you. That's very flattering. So, yeah, and that and that's that's really it. As a writer, really looking at how these characters do what they do and, and overcome adversity to be better. So, going back to what you said a little bit ago, what, what does an intern do at Marvel in DC? I mean, are you, like, running and getting coffee for Joe Q, or or, or was there, what did you do? So as an intern, so I didn't intern at DC, but I interned at Marvel. Oh, okay. So I don't know what they do at DC. I worked on digital comics for both, but I interned at Marvel okay. for for about six months in the digital interactive department. So at the time, we were just pioneering what web comics would be and digital comics would be. So at the time, I made a lot of photocopies of artwork from Derek Gross and uh, Alex Ross and Joe Casada. <sighs> Wow. Uh, and Jimmy Palmiotti. And so we would photocopy all of this artwork and it would be like this old sort of static. Have you ever seen those old 1960s Marvel cartoons like with Captain America and the Hulk and oh, yeah. uh, Iron Man? I that, love those that things. Move in sort of this janky kind of limited animation way. That, that was basically it. So Joe Quesada would draw a picture of Daredevil and he'd draw his arm moving in like eight different ways. Uh, <laughs> and I would have to photo copy his arm in eight different ways. And we'd like scan his arm and then color his arm and rotate it. So that made it look like it was fluid. 
when he was throwing his baton across, you know, across Hell's Kitchen to narrate this letter he wrote to Karen Page, whatever. But yeah, and so that's what you do. So uh, I got to read a lot of scripts. I got to, at the time, interview. It was weird because I was working at Marvel.com. So I got to like interview some of the cast of the X-Men movie when the first X-Men movie came out. Oh, that's so I cool. got to talk to talk to Stan Lee. Hmm. Uh, I got to answer everybody's emails, like everybody who e- emailed Marvel at in 1998 through 99, like everybody who emailed through like info at Marvel.comics.com or whatever. I would answer every one of those emails and people would be like, how do I break into comics? My subscription doesn't work. Hey, do you know Stanley's phone number? Um, what about these movie rights? Like, so it'd be like lots of, oh, I'm, you're, I'm so mad you killed my favorite character. Well, I didn't do it because I'm an intern. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I will send this email to the X-Men offices. Right. But yeah, so it'd be that kind of thing. And, you know, but Marvel was in a lot of turmoil. We were like recovering from bankruptcy. Right, and right. one of the things that was interesting is because we were so short staffed. I, you know, I worked in interactive and then I worked in Marvel Legal for a while. And then I worked in Marvel Creative Services. So I got to like watch as they made like the Avengers cartoon and license all the Avengers toys to like Burger King. Not the cool Avengers cartoon, but the weird one. You step, step, step carefully there, sir. I love that cartoon. Oh, Avengers United We Stand? You love that cartoon? I did. I did. I haven't watched really? it since it originally aired. But yeah, with Ant-Man in the lead, that was awesome. I, I do like – I had all those toys. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> so uh, I, I mean I literally had all those toys. That Wonder Man toy was like the best Wonder Man toy because he you pushed a button and his hands lit up. I thought that that was so cool. That is he had the sunglasses. Uh, the Wonder Man figure was kind of cool. And then uh, – yeah, he was really kind of my favorite of that set. There was a cool Captain America, but whatever. He was the coolest. The Wonder Man figure was the coolest of the set. Oh, wait. No, the Wasp was also cool because she had the head that popped off and became a weird insect head. Wait, now you th- are, are you thinking of the crossing now? No, 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 no. I'm talking about if you look at the Toy Biz figures, there was a okay. Toy Biz Wasp. Um, there was a crossing one that was where she was all insectoid. Right. But for Avengers United We Stand, there was a Wasp figure, like a Janet Van Dyne figure. She had a little magnet on her arm and little okay. cool armor and cool Wasp wings. And you popped her head off. And then you could replace it with, like, this insect helmet thing. Oh, okay. Um, Cool. It's really cool. She's actually a really good quality. She's a little shorter than a lot of other figures, but she's a good quality wasp figure. If you want something that's diminutive and kind of cool, yeah, she's nice. Nice. I like her better than the – I don't like her better than the Wonder Man figure, who's the best of the set. But she's a cool – she's a good quality figure. Folks at home were not expecting this discussion when they downloaded it today. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, why is he talking about Avengers United We Stand where we were here for Guy Gardner? Well, we're not even going to get to that yet because I'm going to jump in here and say – so you worked on Marvel Digital. You you were like a pioneer with helping Marvel get online. So what do you go and do? You help make DC an incredibly successful digital launch with Zuda. You you were one of the ones everyone was talking about when Zuda launched. So look at that. Yeah. So that was really cool. And Steve Ellis and I worked together on that and that was huge success. And then we were able to spin that off to do digital comics, like the first digital comics for comiXology. So I've had this really cool experience, like pioneering digital comics platforms for like three of the biggest 
publishers and comics. So um, that, to me, that to me has been a lot of fun. And now – And since David's not very good at shilling for himself, folks, that was High Moon, which was the amazing werewolf western story, which you can order his graphic novel of right now. <laughs> see, see and then, it? yeah, and then we did, uh, I like that. I like how you parlayed that into uh, something <laughs> shilly. And then uh, um, shilly, like S-H-I-L-L-Y? Yes, yeah, something shilly. Yeah. It's a term. We'll use it. Uh, and then, yeah, for Comixology, we did Box 13, which was like this really cool for, like comic formatted specifically for the iPhone uh, OS. And it was the first of its kind. So and that's available as well on Amazon <laughs> and all your major bookstore platforms. And the student has become the master. Excellent. Well done. I know. And yeah, so it was it was fun. And so now uh, we're, we take a lot of those experiences and we we, you know, make Only Living Boy available as a web comic. Uh, it's free on multiple platforms, and then it's also in print through paper cuts. And so it's this sort of five-volume action-adventure series that's like a cross between Thundar the Barbarian and Bridge to Terabithia. So, and then depending on when this episode airs, you know, we'll have a really cool nifty free comic book day issue out and a really cool almost 400-page omnibus out in July this year. So good, folks. I highly recommend you check it out. It's well worth your time. Now, I got a question for you. So, we've talked a lot about some awesome comics that we both loved growing up. You named some specific, you named dropped some specific creators. Was there any specific creators that really influenced you in becoming a writer? So, it, it's weird. I mean, clearly, people like Jack Kirby and Stanley, I think, are, are definitely like, and, and Will Eisner are sort of the foundation for, I think, a lot of people who grew up of, in a certain era. But, you know, I was a big fan of like Howard Mackey and Roger Stern and John Byrne and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. And I think that they all contribute to this fantastic tapestry of imagination and wonder. But I think for me, the biggest influences, at least on the Marvel side, was like Fabian Nicieza, who wrote The New Warriors, which is like the single greatest influence of like any of the comics I've ever read in my life. Okay. Uh, just in terms of like how these teen, like, so for some people, it's the Perez, Wolfman, Teen Titans era. And then New Warriors was like my version of that. And then on the DC side of things, man, I, I, I could not stop reading the Denny O'Neill Neil Adams stuff or the Archie Goodwin, mm. uh, Walt Simonson Manhunter. I love that stuff to pieces. So, I mean, so there's a lot of really cool stuff on both sides of the aisle that I, that I totally grok over. And DC will always have the special place in my heart for like all the cool stuff and it inspired. And certainly I, I have a lot of love for like Super Friends and Justice League. But you know, there's Marvel stuff deep within my heart that I don't think I'll ever be able to like fully exercise. So it's cool though. It's it's good to be a creator who at least in my mind, be a creator who can recognize the value in the craft, not just pledge allegiance to any one publisher, but really show like appreciation for the craft in a broader, wider perspective. Well, you're going to, you're going to take in more that you're going to take more input in that way. And it's going to help you create better output. Absolutely. And, and I've got your back on the new warriors too, because I'm sure I'm going to, this is probably sacrilege for what I'm doing here, but I've actually read more new warriors than I have new, new Titans. And I loved that book. It was so good. It was lots of fun. It was, Man, the first 25 issues for me, 26 issues for me, were like groundbreaking. So it was like, I mean, I had a crush on Firestar back when she was in Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends. Who didn't? And you said that as if that's past tense, but anyway. (laughs) 
Yeah, but all those characters, like, I recognized from weird places. Like, I weirdly had a subscription to Speedball when I first started collecting <laughs> comics. So I was like, oh, and I had, like, it's so weird. And I, I had the Marvel handbooks, but the only one I had as a, like, a deluxe hardcover trade paperback was the the end volume that had Namorita in it. Okay. And then I had the How to Draw Comics in Marvel Way, which had, like, all this Nova, John Buscema-inspired illustration. Nice. So I came to this book being like, Nova? Namorita? Speedball? Firestar? How did you get these, like, four weird things that sort of p- crossed my path as, like, a weird toddler? You like, being like, I recognize these characters, and, and yet somehow they're all in one book together. How is that possible? And it became so much fun watching them fight Juggernaut and Terex the Tamer, and then learning about who they are and, and how they got involved. I mean, it's just so tightly narrated that, that it's, it's so hard not to appreciate what it does. And I mean, it's, it's sometimes a little goofy and, and it, in how it the characters are portrayed, but I think it's still incredibly authentic, and there are pop culture references in there that I still think hold up today. Well, it was a fantastic teen adventure book. You know, I mean, uh, Marvel had oh. it all over with Avengers and X Men, but they didn't have the teen book that was working for them. Uh, they, they tried they from time yeah. to time, but this one really pulled it together. Like you said, it, it's probably most comparable to Perez and, and um, Wolfman Titans. That is probably the best comparison. And well, and they they had mutant books that te- had teenagers, but they didn't have a superhero book that had teenagers. And that's that's the difference. They had New Mutants, and they had like Power Pack. I love New Mutants, but the shine had come off by that point. They were there was it was in between the Sinkevich era and the the Liefeld era, so it was in that sort of middling area. Right. I mean, I don't mean to be mean. I'm picking up what's going down. No, 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 no. But I think it, it was in a weird place where it didn't know what to do with itself, and I think that ship righted itself. But yeah, it was definitely in that that sort of like trying to find its voice path, and I think New Warriors easily filled that vacuum and, and became a really fun adventure series. Absolutely. All right. All right. You know what? Actually, David, this is all my fault. I've took us on a bunch of tangents. Let's let's get back into the agenda here so we can get eventually to talking about Guy Gardner. So the first thing we got to do, we have to take a second to thank our sponsor. Folks, this episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collect editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode will select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually, it'll be tied into that month's uh, JLI issue or into the episode recording in some way. And today, I want to pimp something we've already been talking about. It's the only living boy. Specifically, this is a hardcover for Volume 1. It's called Patchwork Planet. Now, again, we've sort of talked about it, but here's the description that, as it's written. Uh, somebody must have wrote this somewhere. Some guy who probably got paid to write this kind of stuff. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, writers, comic books, I don't think they really exist. But here we go. Uh, if you were the only living boy on a planet, what would you do? When 12-year-old Eric Farrell runs away from home, he finds himself without his memory, stranded on on a patchwork planet with danger lurking around every corner. Now, every day is a struggle to survive. Luckily, Eric quickly manages to make friends like Morgan, a mermaid warrior, and Thea, a teenage princess from a mysterious insect race. He'll need their help to escape the dreaded Lord Balakar and the evil Dr. Once, and maybe one day find his way back home. 
Now, it's published by Paper Cuts. It's written by some guy I've never heard of named David Gallagher. Art by Steve Ellis. It's 80 pages, full color. And normally, read the hardcover again, keep in mind, normally retails for $12.99. Right now, it's 50% off. So you can get this hardcover for $6.49. That's like highway robbery. That's amazing. It's a pretty good deal. Are you familiar with this book? I mean, well, yeah. yeah. I, I, I hear that it's been nominated for four Harvey Awards, but I'm not familiar with the author, though I'm told that the artist is excellent. <laughs> Well, David, did you happen to bring an in-stock trades recommendation? I did, actually, if you pardon my sardonic wit. Uh, yeah, so I uh, am a big fan of – this is going to sound weird, but I uh, my in-stock uh, trades recommendation is Wonder Woman and the Justice League of America Trade Paperback Volume 1, written by Dan Vado, uh, Chuck Dixon, illustrated by Mike Collins and various – uh, with a cover by Mike Collins and inks by Jose Marzan. So in this never-before-collected stories from the 1990s, Wonder Woman takes over as the leader of the Justice League of America, whether Green Lantern, Booster Gold, or Blue Beetle like it or not. Acting at the behest of the United Nations, the team must respond to a human rights crisis in the remote African nation, only to find the populace under the thumb of the superpower extremists. The team must then jet to Norway, where a young superhero called Ice struggles to keep the nation out of the hands of her evil older brother. It collects Justice League of America 78 through 85, Justice League of America Annual 7, and Guy Gardner 15. Publishers DC Comics, it was a $24.99. Your in-stock trades price is $14.49, so you save a whopping 42%. And it's such a fun, offbeat pick. It has the sensibilities of like DC's Legends of Tomorrow, which may or may not be my favorite superhero TV show. <laughs> uh, and then uh, it's, it's sort of uh, it's sort of built on this awesome JLI, JLA archetype. So I love seeing these characters against this, this amazing, amazing Wonder Woman. I could have said that better. But, but yeah, so for all this and all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. I think that you were supposed to say that. I was supposed to say that. That's fine. <laughs> I wanted to talk about your pick for a minute. It is it, it is an unusual pick. Uh, it's also very unusual the way they marketed it. I mean, it, it's a Justice League of America trade. You might as well have just called it volume, you know, I don't know, 10 or 12 of the JLI trades because that's where we fit in because it's the same series, truthfully. But the fact they marketed it with Wonder Woman, obviously, because she's got this big blockbuster movie. But so refresh my memory here. Is this the run where they broke Jay Garrick's leg? Cause, or is it the run right before this? I think it's the run right before this. This is where Guy Garner's still like in that carrying Sinestro's ring kind of era. Yeah. Oh yeah. So he's like more Guy Gardner warrior than he is anything else. So it's the way that they say like a Green Lantern Guy Gardner. Clearly he's not Green Lantern here, but but it's a lot of fun. It's a very interesting era. Oh, so the neat thing is that Dan Vado wrote this and he went on to be the publisher of Slave Labor Graphics, the publishers behind all of Jonan Vasquez's major hits. Invaders? No, not Invaders M. Sorry, Johnny the, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, Squee. And so it became a really great opportunity, I think. Starting at DC Comics became a great opportunity for him to cultivate the voice that would later influence generations of goths. I had no idea that he was involved with Slave Labor Graphics, because I was reading this Justice League. I, he was writing some other books I was a big fan of as well, and then I just kind of lost where he went and had no idea. Okay, very cool. I know. Ta-da! One to grow on, folks. You learn something new every day. All right. Well, folks, as we go through this Justice League issue, which I promise we are eventually going to get to, we want to hear from you. Please go out on the social medias, use our hashtag, which is FWPodcasts. 
uh, or tag us, which is JLI Podcast on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook, because this is all about building a community of online JLI fans. We want to celebrate this book. We want to share our love for it. We want to nitpick and argue who our favorite character is. We want to hear why David is wrong and everything he's going to say in the next few minutes and why I'm right. Get out there. Share your thoughts, folks, please. All right, because we haven't put this off long enough, we're going to have some more chatting. Because I want to know, sir, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you discover the book, and how did you fall in love? Hopefully it wasn't your second grade teacher, you know, uh, again. Mrs. Anderson, damn you. Um, <laughs> so, no, so it's really interesting. So when I was a kid, like, collecting comics was sort of a, a, a specialty. It was a rare thing. So um, I only got, like, five books a month, and whatever additional comics I got was usually, like, for my birthday or for Christmas. Like, stocking stuffers, whatever. Aww, uh, I know. So in, like, the mid-80s, like, in, for my 10th birthday, I got a stack of Who's Who. And a stack of like Marvel sagas and a stack of like uh, Marvel handbooks. And I, I became a huge fan of like with this vast encyclopedic knowledge of these characters. So I'd like trace over like pictures of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's art. Trace be his name. Really. Or like pictures of the dolphin uh, from Who's Who. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'd be like, oh yeah, like oh yeah, this is how I learned how to draw uh, comics, <laughs> sort of badly. But uh, <laughs> but in the back of Who's Who, you know, I saw this ad for uh, Justice League in the back, and it had Shazam, who I loved, because in the back of Who's Who, they'd be like this cool like where you can find Captain Marvel this month, and where you can find Captain Cold this month, and don't be afraid to read. Booster Gold, Volume 3, to see this character, or Blue Beetle, Number 2, to see Dr. Alchemy. At the the back, I saw this ad for uh, Justice League, and it said, like, Captain Marvel appears monthly in Justice League. And I was like, oh, Captain Marvel, I remember Shazam and the animated show from Filmation. I think I have, like, original cells from it here at the house. And oh, wow. I remember the uh, I remember the, the TV show where they drove around in a Winnebago, <laughs> and uh, he was possessed by the Gray Man. I think he's getting ready to throw a rock at, like, Martian Manhunter. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that looks looks so fun and like i had the captain marvel action figure and i had the martian manhunter action figure and that became like the the sort of the not the gateway but the the impetus to learn more about the justice league because i was familiar with them from the super friends but they only like vaguely talk about like the justice league at all right and then with the superpowers action figures they each came with a comic book and so like i was able to piece together justice league or basically the super friends and and this looks like a fun book so I, I think I started right when Guy Gardner and Commander Glory, Captain, no, General, General Glory. Glory. Turn in your JLI card, sir. Jeez. Yeah. Well, you know, I have him in my um, Green Lantern Corps Convergence, Volume 1. Nice. I do. I have him. Uh, there's a little poster of General Glory in uh, Guy Gardner's apartment. Awesome. I know. I, I, I know. So I just blame the late night for, <laughs> for uh, for flooding that. But yeah, so General Glory. So I start with General Glory and, and reading with those. And then I sort of went backwards and I, I went back and, you know, read the cool stuff with, you know, Rocket Red and the interesting stuff with like Reagan showing up and <laughs> the formation of the Justice League of America. And, you know, everybody knows like one punch and. 
I had, I don't know, Dr. Fate showing up. And I, it was cool to see all these great characters, Mr. Miracle and Big Barda, these characters that had action figures of all in a book together. Now, I didn't have all the figures, but, but you know, it really became a, a my origin story really started with that, you know, and I, I loved seeing characters that I sort of grew up on. Like, I grew up on old-time radio, so, like, seeing the Blue Beetle, like, visualized, because he used to be an old-time radio character, mm-hmm. but seeing him visualized as, like, Ted Cord, that became really cool. And so I, I had this sort of, this sense of discovery of, like, oh, give me these characters. It wasn't what I was expecting, like, from having read maybe months earlier the Justice League Detroit era with Elongated Man and Vixen and Batman so I I, like I got a couple of those issues but it was really the it was really the the Giffen Timoteus McGuire era that really sort of codified in me like how awesome and fun superheroing could be so and, and what it really showed me is like great comedy comes from its characters, you know, and, and so, you know, you have all these characters who each have their their own little quirks. But these these personalities that really like jump off the page, like they all have this common cause, but each of them is there for a very specific reason, a specific purpose. And I love seeing that. That's cool. I like to hear that there's some JLI in your writing DNA. Very nice, sir. And you heard it here first, folks. This man's comic book love for JLI started with Who's Who. Yes, that's just how important the Who's Who comic book is. You should be listening to the Who's Who podcast, too, by the way. All right. So, then who are some of your favorite JLI characters? If you don't mind, please narrow it down to like somewhere between one to three. How about seven? All of them. No. See, uh, great job down the counting. Clearly, you should have paid more attention to Mrs. Anderson's <laughs> second grade class. Darn it. No, I mean, like, I love all the characters. Like, they're all fun. But I think the reason for me, like I said, is Blue Beetle. Like, I I really adored the Ween Collins run. Mm-hmm. I listened, as I mentioned, I listened to the old time radio show as a kid where Dan Garrett has the Blue Beetle. Um, <laughs> you know, and but and Ted Cord and Dan were, like, so, so different as characters. But reading, like, how he was fighting Dr. Alchemy and, and reading all these sorts of characters that he would fight made it kind of interesting. And so when he came into Justice League without any of his fortune, just with like his his bug, um, I thought that that was so cool. And I love that so much of like DC's Legends of Tomorrow borrows that relationship between Booster Gold and Blue Beetle when they write Adam and Steel. So yeah. you see so much of that banter between that, like, because clearly Steel is Citizen Steel is Booster Gold. He's got that like cocky, smarmy attitude. And Ted Cord is clearly and Brandon Routh is really doing his best. Ray Palmer oh, as yeah. Ted Cord. Definitely. You know, and you see all those archetypes. I mean, clearly Heat Wave is, is Guy Gardner. And you see all these characters sort of like these archetypes sort of playing off each other. And, and that to me is a lot of fun. But I, I think it, it's DNA really comes from this this book. And I love Blue Beetle because I think he's just a fun character. But yeah, definitely like I, I've really fallen in love since I read the book. You know, in my 20s, I've really come to fall in love with Guy Gardner. So I guess, you know, cross between Blue Beetle and Guy Gardner are my favorites. All right. Very good choices. Both are great characters. I love both of them for very different reasons. Uh, and they're not always necessarily someone I'd want to hang out with in real life. But reading about their adventures is just absolutely a joy. Who is that? Who's your favorite JLI character? Uh, see, that's the beauty of being the host. I never have to answer that question because my favorite JLI character is usually whoever is the featured character in the issue I'm reading at that time because it changes so rapidly. You know what I believe? Hmm. I believe that you're the power, mad power master behind all of this and secretly your favorite character is Maxwell Lord. 
Um, that is not necessarily the worst guess uh, that you could make. So uh, we should just move on. See, I'm going to change direction on you right now because we've had so much fun talking about other comic books. We are going to talk about the other comic books that were on the shelf the same time this issue was in a segment I like to call Monitor Duty. So, yes, other comics that feature JLI members. Sorry, we're not going to talk about New Warriors anymore, because this comic was on, number 19, was on sale July 12th, 1988. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that. So, other titles featuring JLI members on sale in July 1988. First up is one of my beloved comic books, Who's Who Update 88, number 4. It includes some of the characters that have met the JLI, such as The Weird, Amanda Waller, Maxwell Lord, hmm, perhaps someone I have something in common with, and Oberon. Uh, and also had a cover by upcoming JLI artist Ty Templeton. Awesome. And for more on Who's Who, you should check out the Who's Who podcast, hosted by Rob Kelly and the amazingly, dashingly handsome, irredeemable shag. Oh, wait, that's me. All right. Other books on the shelves, also featuring JLI members, Cosmic Odyssey Number 1 by Jim Starlin and Mike Mignola. Of course, you know, it features Batman and Martian Manhunter. If you haven't read it, go pick it up. It's amazing. Uh, and it was actually recently discussed on the podcast DCOCD from our buddies Mike and Paul from the Waiting for Goom podcast, and they rated it very, very highly because it's just that good. Also on the shelves was Secret Origins number 32, featuring stories from Keith Given, Peter David, and Eric Shanauer. This was the post-crisis origin of the original JLA. Gets mentioned here, of course, because it had Martian Manhunter and Black Canary. And uh, if you like Secret Origins, you should definitely check out our podcast, Secret Origins Podcast, by Ryan Daly, who is a past guest of this show. And for more on the classic JLA, please check out the podcast Justice's First Dawn from our buddy Mike Peacock. All right, so also on the shelves at the time was Batman 425 by Jim Starlin and Mark D. Bright. In it, Batman rescues Jim Gordon, who is being held hostage in a junkyard. And shockingly, Jason Todd does something stupid and reckless as Robin. He also does something <laughs> stupid and reckless as Jason Todd. And there's a whole scene of somebody being hanged, oh. which is kind of weird. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So uh, make sure you read it. <laughs> Boy, that kid was on a path for danger. All right. Uh, also on the shelves was Batman the Cult Number 3 by Jim Starlin and Bernie Wrightson. You know, Jim Starlin, super famous for writing cosmic level stories writing a lot of Batman. It's just kind of weird. Anyway, in this issue, Batman continues his battle with the Deacon Blackfire. Then over in Detective Comics number 591, you've got John Wagner and Alan Grant writing with Norm freaking Brayfogle doing artwork. Batman comes into conflict with an aborigine warrior over an ancient relic, and why not? Because America was having a love affair with Australia in the late 1980s, folks. For more information on Batman during this era, please check out our network's podcast, Batman Nightcast, by Chris Franklin and Ryan Daly, both past guests of this show. Also, we got to mention Captain Adam number 20 by Kerry Bates, Greg Weissman, and Pat Broderick. This is a big one, folks. Blue Beetle, you heard of him. He guest stars in this issue, and this is all as Captain Adam's government lies begin to unravel. And it will all play out in the Captain Adam book, not in the JLI book, interestingly enough. And this is very, like, charlatan heavy. Because, you know, like, Captain Adam and, and Blue Beetle are the charlatan characters that DC had just acquired. So it's kind of a weird, uh, and and later, of course, became prototypes for the Watchmen. So it's sort of weird to see them together. It is. It is. It's very interesting. And they kind of they reference a lot of Charlton-type stuff because it's telling their, quote-unquote, secret history. So interesting. So for more on Captain Adam, check out the Jay Jones coverage over on the Silver and Gold podcast and also the Splitting Adams blog from Jay Jones, again, past guest of the show. And for more information on Blue Beetle, you should check out the Court Industries blog from Tim Wallace and the Beetle Mania podcast from Tim and Jay. Again, both past guests of the show. You know, 
episode also on the shelves was Power of the Atom number four by Roger Stern and Dwayne Turner, Hawkman and Hawkwoman, former members of the Super Friends and new JLI members. Spoilers. Guest star. Yeah. Oops. Uh, <laughs> guest star as some of their Thanagarian gear gets stolen. For more information on Hawkman and Hawkwoman beyond watching them on the Super Friends, check out <laughs> Being Carter Hall blog by our friend Luke Giaconetti. Very good. Or the Tomorrow's Hawkman Companion written by Doug Zavecchi. Close. Zawisha. Doug Zawisha. Also a friend of the show. I call him Doug Wizzywig. Sorry, Doug. I know you're a big fan. I've massacred your name. Please don't send me watermelon jokes. That's all I ask. Hey, it's his own fault for having a last name that looks like somebody lost in Scrabble. But anyway, uh, in Action Comics Weekly, number 614 through 616, Sharon Wright, Randy DeBurke, and Pablo Marcos were finishing up the Black Canary solo feature over there. And for more on Black Canary, of course, check out the Power of Fishnets podcast over here on our network by Ryan Daly. And for more on Action Comics Weekly, check out the Action Comics Weekly podcast by Chad Bokelman, another past guest of this show. Who hasn't been on this show? I mean, come on, really? I, it's surprising to me that so many people who write blogs and have podcasts about the Justice League have appeared on the Justice League International Podcast. I don't know why that is. It seems like seems like a conspiracy that only somebody who likes Maxwell Lord <laughs> would orchestrate. Wait, is my nose bleeding? Hold on a minute. Okay. <laughs> um, so, all right, now we're going to dip forward just a bit. About five months after this, Justice League Europe's going to launch, right? So we're going to start talking about some of those folks. Over on Doom Patrol number 14, Paul Kupperberg and Erica Larson are doing an adventure with Power Girl. She continues oh, to guest so star. great. Well, she continues to guest star as they are battling the forces of chaos. For more on Doom Patrol, check out the Waiting for Doom podcast by Paul and Mike. Then Animal Man, Animal Man, number three, is on the shelf by Grant Morrison and Chaz Truog. Oh, this book is so damn good. So Buddy Baker is in that issue regrowing his freaking arm by using the abilities of an earthworm and then he works to rescue an ape from laboratory experiments and then flash number 18 by Bill Messner Loves please everyone keep him in your thoughts right now he's having a rough time and Greg LaRock in that Wally West saves a member of Blue Trinity while Vandal Savage continues his attack on the Scarlet Speedster Ugh. Bill Loves is my favorite bar none my favorite flash writer really okay period period there is no issue greater then Free Fall and Scarlet, which he had written. Which number is he? You got to give me a number for reference. Uh, I think it's 54. Okay. 54. Yeah. I would have been reading Where that. he's like falling out of an airplane. Oh. And you're like, oh, oh, that's awesome. He's just falling out of an airplane. And he did that amazing Secret Origins uh, issue annual three, where you had Wally West, Jay Garrick, and Barry Allen's story. And for more information on that, you should check out the Secret Origins podcast. <laughs> You are learning to shill. I'm so proud of you. So I, with with the Flash book, you know, I started in around issue 46, 47, somewhere in there when Bill uh, was writing the book and fell in love immediately. I loved his book. I went back and read a lot of the previous issues before that. Uh, I lo- it, he, he did that storyline with the super intelligent animals, right? With Gorilla Grodd. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. He had the, the, the scene, I talk about this a lot in Who's Who, the scene where the giant white, white dog shows up and he goes, my name is Rex. I'm here to help. I was just jumping up and down, screaming and hooting and hollering. I was so happy because I remembered Rex from Who's Who. And, I'm, and I look around the comic shop and I'm like, I'm like, look, guys, it's Rex. He's back. And everyone's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I, well, yeah. And so much of what he had done made its way into the John Wesley ship 
Flash TV show. Which, mm-hmm. I mean, you saw it with yeah. Tina McGee and and well, was yeah, she so cool. was she a Mike Barron creation or was she Bill? She was introduced in the Barron run, but Bill like brought that stuff moving forward, especially in the the Blue Trinity stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. Because they all had Velocity Nine and mm-hmm. are variations of that. Uh, anyway, I, I, I'm rambling, but no, no, I can talk about this. I could talk about this for a long time. This we, is my favorite era of Flash. We could just do like like we could dump this whole idea and we could just do like a newsstand episode where we just talk about comics around the stands that we love. We can go into deep depth. We could do that. We could totally do that. I d- done. Done. <laughs> but folks, we're not. Don't worry. We are going to talk about JLI right after this podcast promo break. The Only Living Boy is a young adult series that tells the story of 12-year-old Eric Farrell, who runs away from home, only to find himself without his memory, stranded on a patchwork planet with danger lurking around every corner. Every day is a struggle to survive. Eric quickly allies himself with Morgan, a mermaid warrior, and Thea, a teenage princess from a mysterious insect race. He'll need their help to escape the dreaded Lord Balakar and the evil Doctor Once, and maybe, one day, find his way back home. Harvey Award winners David Gallagher and Steve Ellis bring their critically acclaimed web series to print in these gorgeous collections exclusively from paper cuts. Pop Matters calls it magical. Publishers Weekly says a classic tale. Bleeding Cool says wild and vibrant. Mental Floss calls it an all-ages adventure book inspired by pulp serials, Saturday morning cartoons, Jack Kirby, and even the music of Paul Simon. The Only Living Boy, available online and in bookstores everywhere. Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the cosmic legends of the universe. Superman. Always a pleasure to be of service to the law. Wonder Woman. Finished. Now let's bring the world back to normal. Batman. Well, Professor Baffles has evidently lost his baffling power. Aquaman. The jet nozzle is buried in the sea bottom. The jet stream is stopped! And those three junior super friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Their mission, to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Join Mike Zumo on the Man of Steam podcast as coverage of Super Friends and its many incarnations begins in March at Alright folks, and we are back, and we're getting ready to talk about Justice League International number 19, and for some odd reason, if you can't seem to find your copy of this comic, then you should probably just turn off this podcast, walk away, go outside, take a walk around the neighborhood, and really reflect on what you've done with your life, because you've clearly screwed up. But, if that happens to be the situation, when you get done with your walk, come back and go to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com, slash JLI, and you will be able to see some of the panels from this issue out there. If you want to read the whole comic, go buy it your own damn self. Jeez, I'm 
All right. So this is Just League International number 19 from DC Comics, cover dated November 1988, cover price 75 cents, three shiny quarters, cover by Kevin McGuire and Joe Rubenstein. David, would you please describe the cover to the folks at home? This is the sort of cover you don't see every day. It's story-centric. It's menacing. On the left is Lobo, the main man. And on the right, <laughs> Green Lantern Guy Gardner singing menacingly. I'm back as he hovers bullyingly over Lobo's body. This is such an interesting era because it's really before Lobo's signature look. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the pale white skin and the biker jacket, all that stuff that, that clearly defines the character seemed to be in flux. If you are a fan of the character and you're going to look for his old appearances, this might throw you a bit. Looking at Guy's face, though, I'm surprised that this cover isn't homaged more often. But uh, really, looking at the cover, the only question I have, this and this is a really spectacular cover, so don't let this in any way diminish my love for it. But the question I really have to ask is looking at this is, why is Lobo blue? That's a very good question. Because you know what? In preparation for last episode and this one, I did some research on Lobo. I knew a lot of it. I just want to look for some facts. One of the things that – this is Wikipedia. Take it for what you want. Talked about was the fact that there is you know, somewhere in Hollywood there is in development a Lobo script. It, it, everything is in development somewhere. So it don't you know only take it with so much grain of salt there. And they said they described the character of Lobo in this Hollywood treatment as being a blue-skinned alien. And I'm like, what? You no, know, what? No, he's Chucky White. And then if you go back and look at all these old Lobo appearances, actually, he's white, but he's always shaded in blue. So maybe he was supposed to be blue in the beginning. I don't really know. Uh, either way, it's very blue on this cover. Yeah, and, and it's really phenomenal. Yeah, because it, I mean, part of that you could say is, is Guy's shadow over Lobo, but it's a really interesting intensity. And, uh, yeah, so, but even inside the issue, which we'll get to in a second, he's, he's much more pale white, and I, I find it very interesting, but I love this cover, and I, I love the, the level of characterization that we get just from this very simple composition. It, it conveys so much emotion and so much personality. One of the things that we have to mention, and we talked about it last episode, so it, it, it's not a surprise, but one of the things that makes this cover so spectacular is the issue before it had the exact same sort of setup, but reversed. Lobo was in the higher position, and Guy Gardner was in the lower position, and Lobo looked menacing, and Guy Gardner was crying, you know, sort of like in fear and cowering. And now you get the, you get the alternative cover. You get the flip side where, uh-oh, Guy's now got the upper hand. And it, it's just, it makes a great one-two combination. I mean, I, I, I can, like you, I came to Justice League later, so I can't even imagine what it must have been like to find this cover, you know, a month later and be like, oh, that's awesome! Knowing it was sort of a sequel cover. Ah, oh, so brilliant. Well done. Uh, well executed by Kevin McGuire. Nicely done. And so the plot and the breakdowns from this issue are by Keith Giffen. The script is by J.M. D. Mateus. Uh, penciler is Kevin McGuire. Uh, this is Kevin's last issue as a regular penciler. Inker's Joe Rubenstein. The letterer is Bob Littleffin. The colorist is Gene D'Angelo, and the editor is little Andy Helfwood. <laughs> so let's just fo- let's just think about that for a second. Here. Yes, folks, this is the last regular issue with Kevin McGuire. I know that's heartbreaking. Uh, he he made the Justice League what it was. We will see him again. We'll see him on covers. We'll see him on the inside from time to time. And we're gonna get ama- I mean, we've got Ty Templeton coming. We've got Adam Hughes coming we got Bart Sears coming we got so many amazing artists coming but it is uh it is uh, it is time for a bit of a sad farewell so let's celebrate this issue and really enjoy it and look forward to you know upcoming awesome adventures uh so David do you want to start us off talking about this issue which is entitled no more Mr. Nice Guy at the end of last issue Guy Gardner suffers a concussion that brings out his more aggressive and violent tendencies 
As we learned from the credits, and it may be like a little redundant to repeat this, but it's no more Mr. Nice Guy, as Garner has learned that it was Lobo who crashed through the embassy last issue. He gets super mad, surprise, <laughs> and gets in a brawl with the main man, who really doesn't want to fight, but Guy is persistent. And Lobo decides that he's going to kill Guy free of charge. <laughs> Just free. Like, yeah, I don't even like you, but I'm going to kill you for free. Um, <laughs> Booster, Blue Beetle, and the rest of the team try to break up the fight. Booster encases Guy in a bubble till he falls asleep, <laughs> which seems a little weird because Guy's got, like, the most powerful weapon in the universe. So well, let's just assume that he was delirious from the concussion. Fair enough. But, yeah, like, uh, you know, whatever. But recovered from the tussle, Lobo goes inside the embassy where he and Maxwell Lord discuss temporary membership in the Justice League. Batman rejects Lobo's temporary membership and leaves to go recruit other more competent heroes. Meanwhile, Black Canary tells Oberon that she can't be on the team right now because blah, 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 personal problems, something <laughs> about action comics and some sort of fighting and some sort of backup story, whatever. Uh, <laughs> n- next morning, while recharging his ring, a guy who's been treated pretty roughly by his insensitive team members is visited by Ice Maiden, who remembers how kind and decent he was to her over the last few weeks, pre-head injury and all, pre-fight with Lobo. Um, his recent behavior and battle with Lobo worried her. Uh, he behaves crassly and sort of chauvinistically, like almost like Andrew Dice Clay would. Yeah. Uh, and she's left wondering a little bit about him. She's like, I just can't figure you out. <laughs> and that's uh, sort of foreshadowing, as we might see. It sort of defines what their relationship becomes. That's true. That's true. Well, I'll take it from here. And the second half of the book is focused mainly on the recruitment efforts. So Batman attempts to recruit Superman upon the instructions of Maxwell Lord. And when the Man of Steel declines membership in the JLI, the Dark Knight is genuinely surprised. Superman said no because he doesn't wish to commit to the Justice League and then let them down. Instead, the last son of Krypton says he'll be there if they ever need him during an emergency. And, you know, that left me sort of scratching my head going, well, wait a minute. The Justice League are, like, fighting a bunch of bad guys, bent on world domination. When exactly wouldn't that be an emergency? Just saying. Anyway. Captain Adam arrives at the embassy after missing all the hijinks, and Maxwell Lord initiates a very uncomfortable conversation about the possibility of JLI membership for major force. Booster and Beetle then visit the rundown apartment of Wally West, The Flash. Wally isn't home, and instead, the blue and the gold are sent packing by Wally's angry mother. After some hilarity, they speculate whether Kong Gorilla is available to join the team. Ironically, 20 years later, he actually will. Then over in New Orleans, Batman tries to recruit Carter and Shayara Hall, known as uh, Hawkman and Hawkwoman, of course. This leads us to another uh, opportunity to spotlight the hilarious and adorable chemistry between the married Hawkman and Hawkwoman, last seen in JLI number 10. I love these characters together, folks, under the hands of Giffen and Dimitaeus. They're wonderful. So uh, Carter's resistant uh, to joining the JLIs. He doesn't really like the whole humorous nature of the JLI. Shayara says she's joining the JLI whether Carter comes or not. Eventually, Hawkman comes around and agrees to join as long as the team is serious and doesn't joke around. Then, the Dark Knight detective, the ever-vigilant vanguard of Gotham City, immediately responds by cracking a joke, saying, Lighten up a little, will ya? My God, you're positively grim. <laughs> oh, Batman. That is that is a really, really great Will Arnett. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, good, because I was going for uh, the other guy. <laughs> Adam West? <laughs> Any one of the other ones you want to pick. So back at the embassy, <laughs> Green Flame is flirting with Lobo, and during this scene, the artist Kevin McGuire, of course, is presenting us with multiple butt shots, pouty lips, and all kinds of cleavage. Now, to contrast the sexual undertones going on in this scene, Green Flame demonstrates her intelligence 
by making a reference to Jack Kerouac. And she's also reading a classic children's story called The Snowman. And I'm telling you, man, smarts and sexy, she is the whole package. So, uh, Captain Adam and Oberon then discuss the new team roster listed up on the computer monitor. Jean, Red, who I can only assume that's Rocket Red, uh, Mr. Miracle, Green Lantern, Captain Adam, Booster Gold, Fire and Ice, Hawkman, Hawkwoman, and Lobo. Oddly enough, no one notices that both Blue Beetle and Batman were accidentally left off the list. That's a little weird. And, and this is the official moment, folks, for the name change for Green Flame, now known as Fire, and Ice Maiden, now known as Ice. Uh, Oberon admits to being sexist, and Captain Adam expresses how proud he is of the team composition. Then we catch up with our heroes in deep space, uh, Martian Manhunter, Big Barda, Nort, and Dimitri, who's now without his rocket red armor, and they activate their warp drive, or their boom tube, whatever you want to call it, and they finally catch up with Magnacon's cluster ship in orbit over Apocalypse. Next issue, Dark Side of the Moon. So, David, what did you think of the issue? I absolutely love this issue. One of the things that I I, I mentioned earlier that I think is great is that so much of of the JLI comes from the composition of the characters, Mm -hmm. and you get so much personality in these vignettes. I mean, you get, like, just one or two pages, you get to see this amazing conversation between, it's very one-sided, between Oberon and Black Canary. You get to see the, the Hawks. You get to see this amazing fight with Green Lantern and Lobo. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. Like, Guy is, like, throwing out all these incredible insults, like, your mom eats Alpo! Um, <laughs> that I think don't have really the context for Lobo. It's like, what's Alpo? You know? Right. But, but I think that that's great. But one of the things that I, I'm always fascinated by, and this is going to sound really weird, but New Yorkers will, will know because this is a local talent, but Maxwell Lord, under the pencil of Kevin McGuire, looks amazingly like our New York One host, Pat Kiernan. If you've ever seen any Marvel movies, Pat's usually the newscaster announcing that the Avengers have saved the day or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and apart from Stanley, he has like the most Marvel movie cameos. Um, so I love that their hair is like parted on the same side. And, and that to me is, I mean, as a visual gag, just very interesting. I, I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but, and may not have been even within the same time frame, but I just love that visual look because it, it codifies what Maxwell Lord might actually look like or sound like. Supposedly, Sam Neill from The Omen was a bit of a influence. In fact, there's one panel that he drew, and, and Kevin Garza even said there was one panel that he based on a, a photo of Sam Neill, and ever after that point, it just seemed like that was always hanging around Max as being, that, being his look. But that's amazing. So I totally see it now that you mention it. But how I think he sounds, you know, thinking about Sam Neill, that's great. But how characters sound is so important mm-hmm. to, to how we read comics because everybody's view of these characters sounds differently in our heads. Like how Superman sounds in my head is probably very different than how he sounds in your head when you're reading the characters. But it's really hard to read a character like Lobo and not hear him in Brad Garrett's Superman the Animated Series main man voice. Like, <laughs> you're listening to the main man. Uh, you know, so that to me is that to me is fascinating. So I, I love rereading this issue and revisiting it and, and listening to these these characters and voices that I didn't hear them in twenty years ago. I mean Kevin twenty years ago, Kevin Conroy was barely Batman. Yeah. Um so to to hear like to read Batman in the Kevin like let her go. Oh like, wow, that was really good. 
like deep voiced Kevin Conroy way or Superman and Tim Daly's voice or whatever. It, it's very different now that media has sort of caught up with comic books and the voices we hear like are so often the voices that surround us in media. So that that's a lot of fun. I mean, does Guy Gardner sound like Dietrich Bader to me? I, I don't know. But we still get that. I don't know, man. It, it's a lot of fun to, to read these books now with all of all of that media having happened. So thank yeah, you, I Andrea Romano. Thank you, Andrea Romano. Exactly. Praise be her name. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, one of the things I love about Guy Gardner is he's like so irrationally heroic. Mm-hmm. He's the kind of character who does the, the right thing in the wrongest possible way. That's true. Like, you know, like the way I think of it is like if he were a Ghostbuster, if Guy Gardner were on your team of Ghostbusters and you were to say, my house is haunted, could you could you save me? Guy Gardner's the kind of character who'd burn down your house and say, well, your house isn't haunted anymore. Like, <laughs> that's like, true. That's how he, he operates. So when he's like fighting Lobo and he's pulling his hair, Lobo's screaming, like, hair pulling? You're actually pulling my hair. What kind of Green Lantern are you anyway? That's exactly the kind of character I love that speaks so much to what I love about him. He does anything he can to win. And he's he's not a bad guy. He's not a villain. He's just, like, really poorly misunderstood. So when you wrote him, like, what did you key in on? What was it? Was there a particular guy story that would help you key in on how to write guy? Or was it, you know, was it a hair pulling moment like this or what? There's an issue of Reign of Superman where it's Guy Gardner battling uh, Cy- uh, Cyborg Superman. No, like one of the Supermans. It's not Cyborg Superman. I think it was Eradicator. It's Eradicator, right. Eradicator, right. And he's like, oh, I think he's real Superman to me. They fight. He's got the yellow ring and stuff. And and the way I think about Guy Gardner is he's the kind of guy, like in our issue of Convergence, he like, he arm wrestles Hercules and wins. And he beats a dragon in the face with a baseball bat while riding a motorcycle. He does these sort of like irrationally heroic things because he doesn't feel like he has anything to lose. Like uh, he's tried playing by the rules, but the rules don't change. And so he recognizes that the best way to win sometimes is to break the rules. And the stories that I think really codify Guy for me are when he uh, sort of like right after Crisis. So I want to say it's like Green Lantern 183, around that Crisis era. Yeah. Like 181, 183, uh, 185. He's trying to fight this big threat. He wrangles up all of these bad guys to help him. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is the wrong thing to do. Um, like, that is literally like you've, you've literally done the dumbest thing. You, <laughs> so, and, and your intentions were pure. And that's the problem is that you were not wrong to, to want to try to fight fire with fire, but you're fighting fire with like literally a forest fire. Like, I have match. You're like, I have a forest fire. Um, <laughs> Throws the baby that, out with the bathwater. Yeah, exactly. He, he's that kind of character. And then he's like, oh, wh- where's our baby? And so that's the kind of character he is. And so that's what I love about him. And that, that level of, like I said, irrational heroism. And that's the best way to describe him. He loves being a hero. And and, and he was deprived of that for so long. He, he wants to do good. He wants to be good. But he doesn't have the 
facility to, to do it the way that Superman does or the way that Batman does or even the way that Blue Beetle does or Booster Gold does. Well, one of the nice things about Guy, though, too, is he totally believes in what he's doing, though. I mean, you talked about all the stuff he does. He's 100% behind what he, he never doubts himself. He never, he, he's no. 100% convinced he has got it right and everyone else is wrong and, and bless him for it. Uh, it. It's a beautiful thing when it works right in the story. Yeah, and, and that's, and I love, I love watching him fight Lobo. It's the best thing. So it's, it's those, that sort of bravado in the face of danger that I love. Uh, so yeah, so this is a great issue and, and I love it a lot. And one of the things I, I think is really interesting is that this is a real standout story because it's largely driven by outstanding visuals, dialogue and gesticulation, like in the way the characters move and a block are blocked throughout the setting. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of storytelling, almost a theater level or a sitcom level element of staging where they're moving the characters. It's not caption heavy. It's really driven by who these characters are in space and how they relate to one another and how they play off of one another. People say that comedy is hard, but I always believe that if you know who your characters are, the comedy comes naturally and it feels like it comes naturally here. Mm. Um, and, and that to me is what's really interesting when Booster and, and Beetle are talking to Wally's mom, you know, like that's, that's the level of comedy I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's so much, so much fun there. And I, th- I think that the only other note I have is like, there's this bit with Ted Cord where after the fight with Lobo, Lobo's like, is this guy always this way? And, and Ted Cord is like, well, it's like this pal. When you bonked him on his guy on his head, it caused him to revert to his original personality. What I mean to say is, and they're like, He's crazy. You know what Lobo would say. And he's like, yeah, something like that. But Ted's got it wrong. Like, that's not Guy's original personality. It's not original. It's not brash. It's not cruel. He was this really great PE coach. His original personality was much more like it was earlier in the, like earlier in the year where he was kind and sweet and over the top and sincere. So it's really interesting how wrong Ted Court has it in this, in this particular issue. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. A lot of people's memory isn't very long, uh, when, because Justice League was very, very popular. So it brought in a lot of readers that hadn't been reading Green Lantern. So a lot of people didn't remember or weren't even aware that guy, of Guy's original personality before he changed. And so I, I'll take an opposite perspective. I think when Giffen and DiMatteis wrote this, they took Guy Gardner that existed in 1987 and said, okay, this is what Guy Gardner is. They bonked him on the head and they made him into a different personality. I don't think they were trying to return him to his original, you know, uh, Bronze Age personality. I think they were creating a new version of him and they, they probably weren't even aware of the original one. Because if you read in interviews, you hear Giffen and DiMatteis say a lot that while they love the comics, a lot of these characters, they take them on and they didn't really know the background of them. Like they're, they're famously have said about Skeets not being in the series. Like, they don't know that they even knew who Skeets was and didn't even find out until much later after they'd already had a booster goal to the series. So I don't know that they even knew about his original personality. So it could be open for interpretation. I also right. want to say one more quick thing. You talked about the, the line work and the art and the, uh, how much came out of the drawing of the characters. The, the best expression I've heard to describe Kevin McGuire's artwork in this series is the acting. He actually made the characters act like, like an actor would bring out a performance. He brought the performance out of that, those characters by, j- just by drawing them. He, he gave them the acting that was just unbelievable on the page. 
Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. All right. Well, I have got a ton of notes here, so let's just blaze through these here. First off, all right, uh, I love that you, you talked about Lobo not wanting to fight. I absolutely love that. He doesn't want to kill Guy Gardner. He's he's just, because as you said, he's not getting paid. So he's like absolutely chill through like the first part of that, even after he's flying out the window and he grabs the light pole and swings himself around. He is the most chill guy you could meet. Until after a while, of course, Guy mouths off enough and smashes enough stuff that Lobo decides, as he said, he's going to kill him. Booster Gold, when Booster Gold trapped Guy Gardner in that force field, you make a very fair point. There's no way Guy should have been stuck inside of that force field. He should have been able to burst out. No problem. But damn, it's still funny. In fact, on page eight, when Guy Gardner is asleep in the force field and his face is up against, like, up oh, against God, the window. I love, I love that. Holy crap, that's physical, so funny. The, the physical comedy of that is just amazing. You know, it's, it is such a shame that Kevin McGuire left on this issue because if you compare this one to, like, issue one, he has come so far. So far. I mean, issue one was still fantastic. But by this point, I mean, he is an absolutely, he, he has earned the top notch, you know, art spot on this book that he deserves. Uh, cause this one is illustrated so amazingly. Oh, and you saw some of that last issue too, as well, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Also, I love that the, the booster buster joke keeps continuing. That's been going on for quite a while. I wish I'd started a tally from the beginning of how many times it happens. But where someone says buster, and he's like, no, it's booster. I keep telling people. That's hysterical. Uh, yeah, that, that, that joke is like, like one level smarter than booster. So I love that it's always made. <laughs> <laughs> and that he he can't he can't actually pick up the, what's happening. So I, I absolutely love it. That's awesome. Okay, so the so when, when they gave us the roster right of all the members on the team and Lobo added to the team, that's like. That is like crazy pants. I mean, he's he's been in their building. You know, he shows up. He's in their building for five minutes, enough to eat a bunch of jelly donuts, and then they Maxwell Lords adds him to the team. That's and Batman says no. Right, Batman that, says no. <laughs> well, you notice the roster at the end lists Lobo and not Batman. <laughs> I, I, I wonder why that is. Right. Hmm. You reference this too. The phone call from Dinah. Uh, you were cracking jokes about it, but dude, that page is one of the most powerful pages of the first uh, eighteen issues of JLI. I think. It is so well executed. It, you know, it's, we're only hearing Oberon's side of the conversation. Uh, then at the very end, when you're purging the information about Black Canary not being on the team and all the use of blacks, I just, oh, that page is, it's, it's one of those moments that I call like one of their gut punches. You know, they, you laugh, you laugh, you laugh. And then when something happens to a character you care about, it's just like, oh, man. Yeah. And I don't mean that again. It certainly don't mean that to be insincere, but one of the things that I think is really interesting is, is we don't know what she's saying. So, right. And that's, that's what's amazing. We only hear his side of the conversation. So like when I read it, I always, I always think that she's being a little bit sarcastic. Like she doesn't, I feel like reading this, especially 20 years later, I feel like, Oh, well, why would you want to be associated with these guys? So I always feel like she's kind of making some excuses, you know? Mm. Uh, okay. You know what I mean? Like he's like, you know, uh, Hey, you know, Max says we're short-handed, and and she's like, well, because we don't see her side of the conversation, we fill in what we think she might be saying. Like, oh yeah, I'm totally, I'm busy, you know, I'm totally, totally busy, you know. So I always feel like she's sort of making excuses or coming up with other ways to to sort of back out of being involved, like lose my number. Uh, <laughs> You know, and that's why he's deleting, deleting her off the, the roster. And I think it's a sad moment for him, but I think she's doing it. I mean, obviously there's a larger, broader DCU context going on because she's got a story already happening concurrently in action. 
Uh, I don't think that's what it is. See, that's not oh. how I read it. I read it as what's happened to her recently in the Mike Grell Green Arrow. Think about oh, how she was. Right. You know, yes, I remember. You know, horrible I re- things that happened to her in Longbow Hunters. Um, she lost her powers. She was assaulted. Right. All these things. And right. So that's how I've always read it. It's interesting. You, you may be right. It may be a whole different kind of conversation. There could be a funny side of that. To me, I've always thought about like what she was going on there and what she was dealing with and trying to you know, sort of rebuild her life. And that's how I always read it. And that's why I'm always like, oh, but maybe there's another side. Right. And but especially in the I, – I think you're right. I mean, I think he's a little bit somber about it. But, yeah, I, I think it's really just context. But it's powerful whether you read it as a funny scene or not. And I had forgotten that context because I was thinking like, oh, well, in the context of this book, this is a jokey book. Right. And right. she's a distinguished hero. But in the, the larger scope of the DC universe, what does this mean? And I, I think that's really interesting because I was making jokes without that context because I didn't read Longbow Hunters until much later. Uh, so it's it's really interesting to have that and, and look at that book through – look at the scene through that those eyes. It's just because you're a heartless bastard. That's all. Um, anyway, Insincere. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and, and staring at this page just made me realize something I haven't seen in a long time. On page nine, the page right before it, you've got a shot of Batman talking to Maxwell Lord, and Kevin McGuire got the uh, the Bat logo wrong again, which is very unusual because early on in the JLI, he would get the Bat logo wrong where he would put extra little phalanges on the bottom yep. of the wing. And then eventually he kind of got to start getting it right for a while. I don't know if it was the inker that would clean it up or whatever, but here it slipped back in. Now, keep in mind this is 1988. By 1989, nobody would ever get the Bat logo wrong again. Trust me. Because, I know what that is. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Also in this issue, you know, they're recruiting all these heroes, right? I think it's a very nice contrast in there where Blue, you know, Blue Beetle's bragging, saying that they're drafting folks for the JLI and no one would ever dare turn them down, which is, of course, the opposite of what actually happens, which makes for a lot of hilarity. Okay, so Batman. Batman's got a real chip on his shoulder here, right? About who's going to be on the team and who, you know, his opinion on all this. And he's being a total jerk about it. And yet he's the one who quit the team recently, if, you, if I recall. He quit and then just came right back a couple issues later, crawling with his, you know, his, his cowl between his, t- his legs. So I don't think Batman should be criticizing choices for the team. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, it, it's very interesting, but it's so weird to see this level of iconography in Batman because this is the more or less the Batman that he's got that very Kevin Conroy look. I mean, he's got that very like Batman, the animated series kind of fluid stylized cape look that, Mm -hmm. that predates the movie predates the animated series. So it's nice to see McGuire have this level of understanding about Batman's silhouette to create this. I mean, there's a great scene where, where Batman and Superman are on the stoop and Batman's cape sort of sleeks into the, the pavement. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love that. So, you know, that's interesting. Batman. I didn't notice that until you just started talking about it. You know, because McGuire's been drawing Batman for a long time. And in all the previous ones, Batman had, well, maybe not all of them, but at least the ones I recall, Batman had shades of blue in the cape because, you know, he was blue and gray. And in this one, you're right. Every bit is black. There is no blue. It's all black and gray. And I wonder if maybe he's been influenced either, I don't know, by year one, maybe, or maybe he's been influenced by uh, maybe Bernie Wrightson in the, in the cult, which is going on parallel to this. Or this, to me, it looks a lot like the Batman that John Byrne drew in Legends, because if you remember yes. that, Batman, his cape was never blue, it was always black in Legends, and, and maybe that was the influence here, but yeah, that's interesting, I hadn't yeah, yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah, page 13, it's very interesting to see, so anyway, yeah, but Batman shouldn't have a say, he quit. Right, exactly, so, 
Then, then we get the uh, hilarious scene with Hawkman because you know he's so wound up tight. I love this portrayal of Hawkman and Hawkwoman. A lot of Hawk enthusiasts aren't terribly thrilled with this version of them. I find they're a hilarious contrast because she's sort of free spiriting. He's so super wound. They're hysterical together. The humor that comes out of them is a riot. He's like Sam the Eagle. Batman's like, "We'll expect you tomorrow at nine sharp." You know, she's like, "He'll be there at eight forty-five." I'm sorry. She is smart. She is funny. She is strong-willed. She's an incredibly sexy redhead. She loves her husband. She's fierce. I, I have got a serious crush on this lady. Oh my god! You, they remind me a lot of Nick and Nora Charles okay. uh, in terms of their banter back and forth. Like there's a there's a level of I mean obviously he's a lot more straight-laced than than Nora Charles is, but it's basically like I, the way I used to read it as a kid was like the thin man with wings, you know. <laughs> so here they're outer space detectives on are on Earth, and they're discovering stuff, and it's really interesting, and I think partially it's because I was really, or like, um, a little bit like moonlighting, too. Like, oh, I was yeah. really into, I was really into the Hawks during this era, and was really, really disappointed growing up that there was never a Hawkwoman superpowers action figure. Mm. Um, so, you know, this is because this is right around the, like, the Kubert, Shadow War, Shadow Thief era, right? It's a couple years after that, but yes. Yeah, but that that post crisis era yes, where absolutely yeah yeah so uh, I'm sorry I was distracted by this awesome hot woman custom I found on Pinterest <laughs> uh, yeah so uh, so continue but yeah but it's I love that era of I love that era of the Hawks because I think it it, it so much captures the comedy again comedy that comes from the characters and you don't I think see this romantic pairing again or this level of of nuance in romantic relationships until you see um, Ralph and Sue later on. I would, so, agree. I would agree completely, yeah. You know, and speaking of the thin man, I mean, he's literally, they're literally, like, he's literally a, a stretchy thin man. So, anyway. Yeah, you're right. And, and, and sadly, this version of Hawkman and Hawkwoman, like, if you look at this version of them and then go to the Hawkman comic that was just being published about a year before this, those aren't really, they're not really the same. They, Giffen and Dimitrius took a lot of liberties with these characters and made them their own. And this particular, you know, again, the wound up one and the, and the, and the sort of free spirited one, Hawkwoman and Hawkman, I, I love this version of them. You don't, you only see them in Just League International number 10. You see them here and in a few more issues until they quit around issue 24, I think. So it's a small, finite era, but man, they're so good. I love every moment they're on the page. Ugh. Right. And where she says, let's go brush our feathers. Right. I was like, I was like, oh my God, that's so cute. <laughs> she's like, oh, come on. I, that's, I mean, there's a, there's a level of chemistry there. And like I said, you don't see that again in the, the just this era of Justice League again until you see Ralph and Sue. Yeah. And, and just to be completely irredeemable so I can earn my name, uh, she is wearing a, a shirt that's tied off right her breast and so you can see her entire stomach you know, like a, a, a midriff and, and again wow she's hot it's just impressive wow and again she's sort of like fire i was talking about her she's the complete package smart funny tough oh, she's just such a great great character so all right since this is kevin mcguire's last issue got to point out some of the great artwork in here uh on page two when guy is flying furiously at the camera to go attack lobo uh, I have seen that panel reprinted lots of times because it's just such a great one. He looks so manic, just like flying straight to the camera. Love that. Then on uh, page four, uh, there's a great shot of Blue Beetle where he's it looks like he's distracted mid-sentence. And he, uh, maybe it's because uh, Booster flew by his head. I'm not sure. But he's got this great expression, like half his mouth is open and his head's cocked at a weird angle. He's like, Rawr! 
And again, it just demonstrates the acting that Kevin McGuire was able to pull off with just a pencil. It's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, I really like uh, the bottom of page eight, actually, where he's uh, got that sort of like biting his tongue yeah. look to, uh, yeah, pointing at Lobo. I love that. Well, and if you go back one more page, all right, so, so there's another thing Kevin McGuire is exceptionally good at doing, and he's exceptionally good at drawing the subtle real-life things, for uh, real-life actions. For example, on page 7, Lobo is eating a jelly donut, and he's wiping, you know, probably powdered sugar or something or jelly from the corner of his mouth, and it's right. just this casual, real-life moment. Later on, um, uh, Maxwell Lord is making coffee. You know, he's, he's doing stuff with a coffee pot. Again, just casual, everyday things that Kevin McGuire manages to put in the comic. You know, a lot of artists would just draw somebody standing there. He's doing stuff, showing that real people do real things while they're having conversations. And uh, right. I absolutely love that. Well, and it's a, it's a writing t- trick, right? So it's it's always to make sure that the one of the things they used to do in film noir is always make sure that your hands had something in them. So mm. you were doing something. So usually in film noir, characters would smoke. Right. Um, in the, you know, so what you have here is like here characters are, are acting with props. And I love that. It's something that we ch- I try to do in my books is always have a character like have a cup of coffee or like fiddling with something. So they're engaged in the environment. So I love like in Own Living Boy, we have a character like eating while somebody's talking to him. And he's like got the fork halfway in and halfway out of his <laughs> mouth and, and it's, like in his mouth full. And one of the things that I think they really capture here is, is how those moments really matter in a comic because you there creates a sense of of uh, verisimilitude where yeah. there's a there's authenticity in and how these characters could be like us yeah no i agree completely and and, and that the good example is again that scene where max is making the coffee you just you, you totally relate with what he's doing you understand what he's doing you feel like you're part of it and, and he's just, i like the way you say interacting with the environment because that's exactly what they're doing yeah 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 uh, yeah especially where he's like yeah like I don't know whether he's like pouring the coffee into the. Oh no, he's stirring it up on the yes. bottom of fourteen. Yep, I love that. And yeah. then Captain Adam's face after that, it's like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that is an awesome face. Another great example of McGuire's facial expressions. He's the master of that. And the last uh, one I want to mention again, facial sort of thing. Last page. Uh, I'm sorry. The yeah, last page. The lighting on uh, Captain. I'm sorry, um, Martian Manhunter and Big Barda. Uh, they're being lit by the monitor screen they're looking at, or maybe it's the fire pit of Apocalypse that's lighting their face. But just again. Wow, look at that's just fantastic job on with the with the facial expressions and the lighting. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, man, and I man and I love Big Barda. So I love seeing this kind of stuff. Yeah, speaking of like strong and smart and and oh, yeah. like warrior maiden kind of thing. That's uh, she's she's yeah, she's crazy cool. She's an amazingly um, cool character. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on all of these, good sir. Yep. And last thing I want to mention just actually comes to the letter column. Uh, you know, Mark Wade was one of the uh, I guess assistant editors or something on this book, so he was doing the letter column, and uh, he's responding to a, a question about European JLI JLIers. So he says, actually, it's funny you should mention the lack of European JLIers because Keith and Andy have been talking about that themselves. By this time next year, it should no longer be an issue. Ah, so they're already planning JLI here by issue 19. So we're five, six months out, I guess, or five months out from JLE, and they're already planning it out. And in fact, I felt like there was a little bit of setup in this issue because Captain Adam, he was talking about how proud he is of the team, his concern for Scott. I really felt like they were starting to set Captain Adam up as perhaps a leadership position position in this issue. Yeah, I, I would agree. All right. Such a great issue. Absolutely gorgeous. Love it. 
top to bottom. Uh, it's a fantastic one for, uh, for Kevin McGuire to go out on. And next issue, we're going to get Ty Templeton, which will be equally amazing, folks. So uh, we're going to touch on a couple of the house ads real quick. Uh, there's one for Dragonlands by Dan Mishkin, Ron Randall, and Randy Elliott. I don't have a lot of experience with this book, but I can tell you Dan Mishkin and Ron Randall are both incredibly nice men. I've spoken with both of them at great length, so very nice guys. I've, I've had dinner with Ron Randall, uh, and he's pretty, pretty, pretty cool. He is. Uh, and I love Dragonlance. I read the books when I was a kid. I've never read the comics, but I love the the idea of the books. I love like seeing Raceland and all these other characters exploring the world. That's that's super exciting for me. Now, folks at home, if one thing you don't know about David Gallagher, if you don't know this already, you should, is that he is a hardcore role player and specifically loves the Marvel role-playing game, the face-rip system, if you will. He is a complete junkie for it. If you want to love him forever, send him tweets of like Marvel modules you have at home. He'll, he'll just go crazy for it. I, I will retweet them all forever and ever. It's a sickness, folks. It's a sickness. So. Because it's really, as everyone knows, the DC hero of all playing games infinitely better. So, and I proved it. So, on the air, right the by spending a by spending a hundred common points and <laughs> using a power stun. Uh, it was a hero point. Thank you very much. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another house ad in this one. Not a lot of house ads here because this was came out in the summer, so you know it's mostly Zit Cream and uh, M and M's is how they usually roll during the summer because they actually get advertising money, so they don't have to do house ads. But anyway, the other house ad they got is a uh, half two half pagers. In the top half, you get uh, an ad for the Secret Origins comic book, specifically about the Justice League International issues. Hot damn! So just imagine the mightiest heroes of our time. Secret Origins number 33 through 35, a three-issue special series beginning in September. So that if you want to hear all about this, you should check out the Secret Origins podcast, issue, episodes 33 through 35. They did a deep dive on these stories, talked all about the JLI folks. Uh, we are not going to cover those here because most of them were not written by Giffen and Dimiteus. You should definitely check that out. It's awesome stuff. Who, who illustrated that house ad? I, I knew you were going to ask that. I wish I knew off the top of my head. It's actually the covers. They did this triptych cover for those three issues. Where like the, the where you had Mister Miracle and Fire and Ice on the left, that was like issue thirty three, and then the middle with Captain Adam and um, Rocket Red and Nort was issue thirty four, and then um, Martian Manhunter and some combination of those. But that was actually a triptych sort of cover, and I don't know off the top of my head who drew it. Okay, that's fine. If only I knew someone in the comic book industry, I could ask who should be able to just look at say, it and be able to tell. You know, if only you I know, knew I anybody would, in the comic book industry. Yeah, if if only you probably I had dinner I, with the artist. I probably have. I I will uh, I will hold off, and then uh, if I come up with the answer, I will text it to you. Okay, because I have just you know psychically reached into the ether and pulled out the artist on this house ad, because in, in no way, shape, or form did I actually Google it and then edit that out, because I wouldn't do that to you folks. Uh, the artist on this, wait, oh yes, of course, it's Jerry Ordway and Ty Templeton. Yes! What? It's amazing. That's pretty cool because I was going to say it looks Mignola-esque in the level of blacks you see, especially along Captain Adam's thigh, leg, upper shoulder, clavicle, scapula area, and then again through uh, Mr. Miracle through his cloak and down his leg, and then again through Martian Manhunter. So it, the, the blacks there are so prominent and so striking that it doesn't necessarily remind me of, of Jerry Ordway and Ty Templeton, more like prototypical uh, Mike Mignola. Very interesting. I can see what you're talking about. Now Now that I know who's involved with it, I look at Ice and I look at Martian Manhunter and I go, oh. Of course, those are Ty Templeton. I can absolutely see it. But yeah, guy, Captain Adam's face was completely throwing me off. I could not place that. Yeah, and that was that was really where I was going from it. It had that very heavy black look. So I was, I'm really impressed because it, it 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 says a lot about their styles that they're able to have this level of elasticity. Mm. 
All right. Well, also on the same page, we get an ad for Suicide Squad. It says, Campaign 88, Suicide Squad style betrayal and murder. John Ostrander, Luke McDonald, and returning inker Carl Kessel. It's all, it says, read all about it in issues 21 and 22 starting in October. And if you haven't read the Suicide Squad comic, folks, you don't know what you're missing. Amazing series. This is a really interesting era of Suicide Squad, too. You know, and so much of Suicide Squad obviously has been prominent throughout our, our pop culture. Like, guys, you know, they, they had a movie. They, they have did? a Yeah, the, uh, they had Oh, okay, right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> Animated. And they were uh, mentioned in TV shows like Arrow, I want to say. and Well, they were in the Justice League cartoon. And the Justice League cartoon as Task Force X. Mm-hmm. And they were in Smallville. Really? Oh, well, I, okay. I, think, I didn't realize that. Pretty sure. Well, Deadshot shows up in everything nowadays, so it wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they were in Smallville. Black Manta was in Smallville, so I would think that – whatever. So my point <laughs> my point is is that I think this is very interesting. So I'll be very, very interested to go back and read these, these back issues next for whatever Suicide Squad podcast has me on. <laughs> and hopefully Deadshot will decide to get involved in the next election here in the United States and clean some things up. All right, folks, now is one of my favorite parts of the show because, quite frankly, I just get to sit on and take a break. We're going to do a segment where our guest is going to guide us through the history of one of the characters in a segment I like to call... Character Spotlight. Character Spotlight. Light, 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 light. And this is where David is going to tell us all about Guy Gardner. This should be interesting. So please take it away, sir. So as I was telling Shag and, and the rest of our listening audience, I have a lot of love for Guy Gardner, who I think is just a tragically misunderstood character. And you may recognize Guy from the Lego movies, DC superhero Lego movies, where he shows up voiced by Dietrich Bader, or the Green Lantern animated series, where he's also, again, voiced by Dietrich Bader. But for people of a certain era, Guy Gardner represents this sort of cocksure, macho, bravado kind of character. But I think he's he's super, super misunderstood. Like, here's a guy who, uh, in Green Lantern number 59 from 1968, shows up and is just this really caring PE coach who just happened to not be close enough to the ring when Abensor died. You know, the ring could have gone in any direction, and it just happened to go to Hal Jordan because Hal Jordan was closer. But both men, both Guy Gardner and Hal Jordan, had this fearlessness that made them ideal Green Lanterns. And that, to me, is, is really interesting. There's something in Guy's character that, that shows that he is, is just as good and just as noble as one of the most popular Green Lanterns around. Uh, and that, to me, is really interesting. And and so, throughout the course of his history, he subbed for Hal Jordan. When ha- Hal ran off to save the galaxy, he left poor Guy at the mercy of Green Arrow's Chili <laughs> and a broken power battery. You know, they team up, and they, they fight this floating eye thing in space and Green Arrow, Ollie isn't too fond of, of having like Guy, the super newbie, team up with him. But he's like, yeah, have some chili, hang out. Well, it'll be cool. And Hal's away and Guy recognizes that he needs to charge his ring. And so he does. And in saying the oath, he gets obliterated. And this is a pretty iconic Green Lantern, Green Arrow cover. But what happens is, yeah, Guy charges his ring in the power battery in Brightest Day and, and Blackest Night. And as he's doing it, it explodes and he's gone. Mm. And it, it's it's really tragic. And how Jordan comes back from his outer space voyage. Yeah, I wasn't going to say that, but sure. 
Um, and <laughs> well, Jordan doesn't well, really. Hal is the Jordan, worst. So. He really is. But he doesn't. He's, he he comes in and says, oh, guy's gone. And there's nothing we can do. And he doesn't <laughs> go to look for him. He doesn't try to do anything to memorialize him. He's just like, oh, there's nothing we can do. That's it. Instead of, like, trying to find Guy or, like, reform him or undisintegrate him, uh, <laughs> not being able to find Guy's family, he finds Guy's fiance, Carrie Limbo. And Hal is like, hey, Carrie Limbo, let me tell you about Guy. And she's like, oh, well, that's sad. And Hal and Guy's fiance get involved in a romance, a, <sighs> a sexual affair. Hal is the worst. And they get engaged. And as they're about to be married, uh, Guy Gardner, who is possessed and lobotomized by General Zod, comes out of the Phantom Zone to interrupt the marriage. Superman and Hal Jordan go into the Phantom Zone to fight General Zod only for Guy, who is a puppet of Zod, to then be ripped from the Phantom Zone into the interdimensional world of Quark, where he's then lobotomized by Sinestro. Hal goes to find him, and during that time, um, you know, he, he they fight. Hal and Sinestro fight. They save Guy's life. But Guy comes out of Quard catatonic, completely, completely uh, obliterated, in a coma, unable to do or interact with anything. Hal then leaves Carrie, who he almost married, to take care of Guy. So <laughs> the engagement is over. Their relationship is over. Guy is left catatonic. And Hal, carefree, sure as you can, says, oh, you're in charge of him now, and flies away. So I, I got to ask real quick. From the chili and exploding battery to Guy being catatonic, like how many issues was that? Did they do it all in just one no, issue? No, they did it, it over the course of like, I want to say over the course of a year. So, really? Yeah, so it okay. it's, goes from Green Lantern 123 is where he comes out and they save Guy's life. So it's called Mission of No Return. So Guy Gardner comes back, back at last, back in action, Green Lantern. So Green Lantern, Green Arrow 122 is where you see sort of the crazy, these rings, I, the web kind of thing. So that's where the guy comes out of things. So those are two issues between the wedding and saving guys, two issues. It's Green Lantern, Green Arrow, 122, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, 123. I want to say it's Green Lantern, 116, Volume 2, and then 122, Antimatter World of Cord. Yeah, so maybe six or seven issues over the course of about a year because of the irregularity of when the book came out. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it was a bi-monthly yeah, bi yeah. bi monthly book. It was Danny O'Neill who's writing it. So it's was, it was very interesting. So Danny O'Neill, he, he got some Gil Kane in there. So it's cool. But yeah, so from what, like 116 to like 123 is this epic saga of Guy Gardner being destroyed, <laughs> being kidnapped, all this stuff happening to, to Carrie Limbo and Hal and, and Guy. Um, and then he comes back. So he, he gets rescued. He's left catatonic until crisis, where the Guardians, who are no masters of human physiology, try their best to repair him and leave him as the last <laughs> Green Lantern. But he has, like, brain damage and aggression. And you hear about how brain damage can ruin lives. But it's seriously true with Guy Gardner, who started this noble 
character who was literally the next Hal Jordan. If right. he were a couple miles closer, he would have been the guy. He would have been our Green Lantern. But no, but because of sort of his his crooked path to heroism, you know, he's left as this this sort of broken, acerbic, crass kind of character. And that's really interesting. I have a lot of sympathy for a, a kind of character who is heroic in spite of his disabilities. And I know everybody sort of makes fun of him, but I have a lot of sympathy for a character who has who has literally recovered from being in a, a state of, of catatonic coma insufferable like irreparable brain damage like that somebody's able to come back from that is pretty powerful and speaks to you know the triumph of the human spirit even though the guardians did it <laughs> <laughs> And one of the sad things, too, is, is I remember from his Who's Who entry, like, when he was in that limbo area, he was able to see the real world. So he could see Hal Jordan in Carrie right. Limbo getting it on. I mean, like, that's, like, right. awful. Yeah, and that's and that's exactly it. So he he could watch, but he couldn't say anything. And that that's so challenging. Like, he was watching as his heart was being broken. So there's a there's right. a there's a sense of sadness to that character, and everybody writes him off. And I did when I started writing him. I was like, I have to write about Guy Gardner? Like, oh, I was Guy Gardner. But once I learned about his character, you know, I was able to, to really think about him as a, in a, in a lot of ways, like somebody who's suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, here's this guy who, who's been exposed to so many traumas, and he's just trying to be a hero in spite of that. And it's to be deprived of that or to be... Uh, mocked because of it, you know, there it, it, it's really challenging. You know, it's not really an act. I mean, I don't think he's really that that level of of awful. I think he doesn't have the the executive function or the mental wherewithal or even the cognition to understand that there's something wrong with him. And I don't think his his teammates really recognize that either. You know, and we mentioned a little bit of this earlier, but I think Steve Englehart probably had uh, all of that in mind when he brought, I think it was Englehart that was writing Green Lantern right. during Crisis, right? Yeah. I think he had all that in mind when he brought Guy back. But again, I don't know that Giffen and Dimatteis did. Right. I think they were just writing Rambo with a ring. You know, it's kind of how they how they visualized it. Well, and they actually set it up like in Green Lantern, Green Lantern, like 181. I mean, they try to set up like Guy's slow recovery, like because you'll see Hal visit him. You'll see Carol visit him. So there is like a setup to like this, this guilt that Hal feels I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 60 issues later. But it, it's interesting to see sort of the evolution of the character. Well, I think the important thing to walk away from this all, folks, is, you know, one, remember that Guy had a life before JLI, and his personality here is reflective of that. And two, remember that Hal Jordan is the worst. So. Hal Jordan is the worst. I think we've firmly established that. So. All right. Now, folks, it is everybody's favorite part of the show where we are going to nominate the funniest moment of the issue in something we call... Wahaha Award. <laughs> award. <laughs> nice. Do you not do it like that? All right, and this is the moment where both myself and David are going to pick one moment from this issue, and it will be awarded the coveted Wahaha Award. David, you're the guest, unfortunately, so why don't you tell us which moment you picked? So the moment that made me... <laughs> <laughs> was uh, I love your you know, I was it's infectious. I think I was not as visually funny as Gardner falling asleep in Booster's bubble, but the moment that made me. <laughs> 
was the booster beetle stuff as they're trying to draft uh, leakers. It's like super subtle character work, but like watching Wally's mom slam the door in their face was like kind of the best. Okay. Yeah, the blue turkey and all that. And yeah, the, she calls him, he says, blue beetle, blue turkey. What? Oh, yeah. And the, yes, I love all that level of nuance, especially like where they're talking about like how blue beetle's CD player was repossessed. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of really subtle character work there. And it, it's not pee your pants funny, but it, it's funny in that these are characters that you feel like you would know. I love I love the art on this page too because like the, the, the top right hand left hand panel where uh, Booster and Beetle are, are meeting Wally's mom, they, they have just the most perfect smiles on their face. Like you know they're, they're they're like I don't know some sort of salesman or something. And you know he calls Booster his boy wonder, which I thought was hysterical. It's funny stuff. It's funny stuff. It's not the funniest moment in the book, but it is certainly funny stuff because the funniest moment in the book is in fact Guy Gardner asleep in that bubble. That is freaking Tex Avery kind of moment that is so freaking funny. Guy is just, he, folks, <laughs> this will be in the gallery. He's asleep in the bubble. He's got his butt arched up in the air. It's kind of drooling against the side of the bubble. Yes. His face is up against the bubble like a, like a kid would be when he's, you know, half his nose is squished and his eyes squished and his mouth is open. Oh my God. It's so damn funny. So for me, that's the blah ha ha moment. Both are legitimately funny, but unfortunately, this is the part now where we have to decide which one walks out of here with the coveted blah ha ha award. Dude. You know, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say Guy Gardner. I'm gonna. You're gonna switch your, you're gonna switch you, your vote. I'm saying that, mm, yes, I'm gonna switch my vote. Cause you don't see scenes like that in comics anymore. That is true. You do not. You do not. So, alright, I am gonna take that win and run with it. So, uh, thank you, sir. I'm much appreciated. Wait, wait, wait. Are you gonna do a cackle? Are you gonna do a bwahaha cackle? <laughs> Okay, there you go. That, that award is now bestowed upon your, your moment. <laughs> Congratulations, Mr. Gardner. You are the proud recipient of the Boaha Award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you, so wear it with pride, sir. Yeah, yeah. Shag, I'm going to go, like, charge my power ring and save the oath and save the world or something. Is that a euphemism for something? Uh, yes, for saying the oath and saving <laughs> the world. I will be back when the world is saved. Perfect. Great. Well, that actually works out well. So, folks, well, David goes and saves the world, and apparently we're all going to owe him a debt of gratitude for that. Thank you. So, while he does that, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Log. Alright, folks, if you're listening to this on the day of release, happy Mother's Day. But what are you nerds doing listening to a podcast right now? You should be calling your mothers. Sheesh, what are you people? Ugh. All right, let's get on to your feedback, folks. Remember, go on the social medias, use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcast, and tag us at, at JLIPodcast or Justice League International Blahaha Podcast. As I said earlier, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And remember, if you're outside the United States, let me know. We'll be sure to assign you the appropriate embassy. And it's good to know, too, because if you're international, we have to filter iTunes properly to see your reviews. Speaking of which, let's do a few iTunes reviews. 
As a thank you for those of you that have left an iTunes review, we do read the entire thing on the air. That's just our way of saying thanks. And by our, I mean mine, because, like, it's just me, really. All right. First iTunes review is from someone whose name is simply <laughs> Patty Pants. <laughs> Patty writes, totally awesome. This is such an entertaining podcast, an excellent host, great co-hosts, super fun segments, an awesome celebration of one of the greatest comic runs of all time. Well, thank you, Patty Pants. Feel free to write in and let us know your real name, unless you are, in fact, named after the diapers. So, all right. Up next is Jim McCarthy. He wrote on iTunes, the podcast that JLI deserves. This is my favorite era of the Justice League, and I love Shag's thoroughly entertaining review of each issue. Keep the bwahahas coming. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate that. And thank you to everyone who submitted an iTunes review. We've got quite a few, but still would love some more. So if you haven't left a review, please go out there and leave a review on iTunes. It really helps raise the profile of the show. And for those of you who haven't left a review and don't intend to leave a review, well, your mother wears General Glory's combat boots. Just saying. All right, now we're going to dive into your feedback from the episode where we covered JLI number 18 with my guest, Rob Williams. During that episode, during the feedback section, I did ask for your help. I said, folks, I needed to make a decision because coming up very soon, we're going to reach the point where Justice League America and Justice League Europe are both being published. And the intention is to cover two issues each month. And I said, I need to make some format changes. And one of the things I want to do is get rid of one of two segments. And I asked for your opinion. That was either the character spotlight segment or the monitor duty segment. And uh, the vote was overwhelmingly to get rid of monitor duty and keep character spotlight. I actually was a little surprised by that. Uh, we received votes from about 30 folks. Now, that's a step up from last month's voting. But come on, people. I know the download numbers for this show. The zillion other folks who didn't bother to vote? Go sit in the corner until you can play nice with the other children. Jeez. And got some related comments to the vote also. Some folks suggested we keep the character spotlight, but once we sort of tapped out all the characters available, we could bring back monitor duty. That's an idea, but I, I don't know if we will run out of characters. We'll just have to see, because it's not just about covering JLI members, but also characters that appear in the issue, or the villains, or, you know, whatever. So, uh, Paul Hicks suggested we lose the synopsis, because he says he already knows what happens in the comics. Silly Australians, they're always upside down. Kichi Baker, <laughs> he cracked me up. He said, why don't we get rid of the listener feedback section? Who cares what the people think? <laughs> well, Steve Campbell wrote in, apparently agreeing. He says, agreed. I skip that segment every time. Well, sorry to hear that, Steve, since you won't be hearing me say your name in this episode. Steve. We also received two votes to continue Justice League America and Justice League Europe in separate episodes of the show. Well, folks, I appreciate those thoughts and your support of me, but but it's always been the plan once we hit the third year of the comic that we start covering one JLA and one JLE per episode. And once we start hitting those two issues, really, to prevent it from getting too long, what we're hoping to do is, you know, we're going to say goodbye to Monitor Duty. We've already talked about that. We're also going to say goodbye to the house ads. And um, the synopsis will also be shorter. And I've got a few other things in mind to help try and bring the episode length down. So we'll, fingers crossed, hopefully they won't be too long. The other reason, too, for not doing two separate episodes is, guys... These things take a lot of my time, you know, between the scheduling of the guests, the prepping. I mean, the prepping alone, just reading the comic and all the notes and all that stuff and and then recording it and then doing the editing and then releasing it and the promotions and the image gallery. These things take a lot of time. You know, I got a full-time job. I got a family. My wife would like to see me. Obviously, she has bad taste in men. My children would like to see me. Obviously, they have bad taste in fathers. Absolutely love doing this show and I'm fully committed to it. I'm going to give every episode my best. But my plan is to cover two issues per episode. 
I also received one comment I kind of want to address. They said there's too many podcast promos and too much time spent mentioning other folks' podcasts. Well, I hear what you're saying. It's a fair point. However, I have my reasons. Um, I'm a huge supporter of fellow podcasters, and I plan to continue to support them. Therefore, you'll normally get about four podcast promos per episode, so that'll be two per break. Because I want to support my friends, and I appreciate all the support they give me. I mean, look at these listener feedback sections and the commitment of the listeners and the fellow podcasters. Building communities and supporting each other continues to play a huge role in building this amazing group of JLI fans, and it's also a personal ambition of mine, building communities of friends. So I plan to continue with the podcast promos. Now, admittedly, the podcast promos in the previous episode were a bit on the long side, but they were also time-sensitive. They were specifically about stuff going on in May, so I wanted to put them in there. And if you really can't stand the podcast promos, just fast-forward. I mean, people have been doing that since the invention of the VCR. Welcome to the 1980s, folks. <laughs> and uh, regarding that I mention other folks' podcasts when I say their name, uh, it goes right back to supporting my friends. However, in an effort to improve this, several months ago I altered how I do feedback, and now I only mention a maximum of two shows for each person that leaves feedback. Sorry, Rob Kelly, I don't mention all 4,077 of your podcasts anymore. Anyone notice what I just did there? <laughs> All right, folks, up next, we're going to be pulling comments from our website, email, social media, all that stuff. So I'm just going to be pulling bits and pieces of what you guys wrote, because quite frankly, if I read every single word, we'd be here forever. There is 30 pages in this document. Oh, my gosh. You guys are amazing. So bear with me while I go through and cherry pick some of your thoughts. All right. First up is Paul Hicks from our Australian embassy. Paul is on the Waiting for Doom podcast and also the DCOCD podcast, where I recently appeared as a guest, helping them cover Eclipse of the Darkness Within. Lots of fun. People deserve to know that Shag snipped the JL May promo before it reached its transcendent climax. Censorship is alive and well in this podcast. Yes, Paul, we did shorten the JL May podcast promo because, oh my gosh, my ears were bleeding by the end of it anyway, even though I was one of the folks singing, and I put singing in quotes. Then we heard from our buddy James Wynn, who wrote in to say, I store my Justice League America and Justice League Europe issues together in preferred reading order, double boarding some America and Europe issues together as necessary when the, quote, story continues between books. When that isn't the case, I group the main America issues together and the Europe issues together according to their story threads. That's how JLA and JLE books ought to be collected, I think, no matter what DC's doing in their trades. The reading order always seemed to be self-explanatory to me, but let me know if you need help. Wink! It's all blah-ha-ha Justice League. That's awesome. I love the way you organize those, James. That's fantastic. Then we heard from my buddy Chris Franklin from our Kentucky embassy, because let's face it, Kentucky's like a different country in them hills there. Chris and his wife do the JLU cast, Supermates, and several others. Chris wrote, fun episode as always. Rob 2.0 was a great guest. And yes, I feel the Michael Keaton vibe with Lobo here too. Maybe it was the way McGuire drew him, but I saw Keaton's Beetlejuice in these pages back in the day. Beetlejuice would have just hit the theaters in the spring before this issue arrived in June. Not sure if that was enough time for McGuire to be channeling Keaton on purpose, but for what it's worth, I always saw the connection. I remember being really excited about the upcoming Guy and Lobo dust-up. Good times. Then we heard from Rob Kelly, my podcasting life partner and host of the Film and Water podcast and the new MASHcast, and also the man most likely to survive a zombie apocalypse because he runs so darn fast. Rob writes, and so this Rob you can be nice to? <laughs> I remember these back-to-back -back covers. They were so goofy and fun and kind of uncommercial. Then Rob goes on to tell a story about when he attended the Kubert School. By the way, if you didn't know, Rob attended Kubert School. Uh, in 1992, we were in a class with Joe Kubert as an instructor. Someone drew Lobo as part of this week's assignment, and Joe asked who was the character, and we explained, etc. At some point, someone mentioned the, quote, Wisdom of Lobo book that was out about the same time. Joe asked what that was, and we told him it was a book made up of a new cover and 64 entirely blank pages. Joe just shook his head and resigned disgust, and we moved on. <laughs> 
They were heard from my buddy Jose Rivera. He says, love the episode with you and Rob Williams. His classroom looks amazing. Also, I was glad to hear he's also a fan of General Glory. I always remember this issue of JLI for guys. I'm back. When I was going through the series and came to this point, I was cracking up at first. Thinking it was a funny way to end the issue. But then it hit me. I thought, oh no, Guy is back. That's not a good thing. <laughs> and finally, I'm glad you covered the bonus book. I absolutely think this was DC testing the waters for a Mr. Miracle solo series. Also, it reminded me of a 1996 episode of The Simpsons called Hurricane Nettie, particularly the part in the episode where the town comes together to rebuild the Flanders house, only to skimp out of materials, adding their own additions, and ultimately the house collapses. Coincidence? I think not. Well, Jose, I think the only appropriate response to that would be, Simpsons did it. Then we heard from my buddy Mark Lax. He says, a very Brady, uh, I mean Barta, Justice League issue. Definitely the MVP of this issue in both the main story and the bonus feature. I didn't start reading these books until around 1990, so I was already familiar with the jerk Guy Gardner and was unaware of the whole good Guy Gardner thing. Of course, they didn't seem to get much mileage out of it during the course of those 12 issues, but that last page was a stunner. You're not wrong, Mark. You're not wrong. Then we heard from our buddy Martin Gray from the Scottish Embassy. He also does the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, and he recently appeared on an episode of FW Team Up on this same network talking about Spider-Man and Captain Britain. It was fantastic. You should check it out. Martin writes, Fab episode from you and Rob. Our Canadian friend touches so many bases. The fact that he's a school teacher puts him right in Guy's ballpark. Just as long as he doesn't hang out with the old slapper Carrie Limbo. <laughs> then Martin goes on to say, I'm not a fan of the cover. It's not recognizable as Lobo, though the secret makes it better. Then he says, yay for Barta, and I love the DC bonus books. Here's a list of who did what on the bonus books. And he gave a link. If you remember on the last episode, I said uh, I wasn't sure if many of the bonus book creators went on to fame or not. Martin follows that up with saying, who's Rob Liefeld and Jim Blanton and Harry Canals? Well, those folks will never go anywhere at DC. Fair point, Martin. Thank you very much. Siskoid followed that up from our Canadian embassy. Now, Siskoid does a bunch of podcasts, but a couple of them include First Strike Invasion podcast and Gimme That Star Trek. And Siskoid addresses those bonus book creators. He goes, the recognizable names are really the artists. But yeah, Rob Liefeld and Jim Blanton became major stars, whether I like their work or not. Other names you might recognize include Gordon Purcell, Randy DeBurke, Dean Haspiel, Dennis Rodier, Peter Krause from Power Shazam, and Neil Vokes from Ninjak. Of course, in this bonus book, the inker is Mark Pennington, the amazing inker on Peter Milligan's Shade the Changing Man. Man, Cisco, you aren't wrong. I love Shade the Changing Man. That was a fantastic comic. In fact, you know what? I, I went looking for the trade of... Uh, this is totally off topic. Sorry. I went looking for the trade of Shade the Changing Girl just recently, and I couldn't find it. So, you know what? If anyone's read Shade the Changing Girl, please write in and let me know. Is it as good as I'm hoping it is? Because I'm interested in trying it out. Eric Linden also commented on the bonus book creators where he mentioned uh, Dean Haspiel. We had mentioned him just a moment ago. He says, I believe that Dean Haspiel did a bonus book later on in JLI number 24 or 25. Ah, okay. Well, we'll check that out, Eric. Thanks for the heads up. Heard my buddy Max Traver. He says, as for the Bwahaha Award, I agree that Nort's overlooked quip is the winner for this issue. And he goes on to say, Barta really did show leadership potential once she got a hold of her temper here. And that really would have been interesting to see explored in the series at some point. Working with your spouse is dangerous enough, but when your partner is actually the other partner's boss? That would have been fun to read from a safe distance. <laughs> he also says, Rob's classroom is awesome. I recently reacquired the entire run of the Amazing Man series, so I was especially psyched to see him standing a very welcoming guard over this hallowed place of learning. 
Then I heard from my buddy Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary. He's also a member of the Legion of Superbloggers. He shared some information about that Doom Patrol cover we talked about last time, which was an homage to JLI number five, the one they're holding Guy Gardner back. Uh, he says, about that Doom Patrol cover, I met Eric Larson at a convention a couple years ago and asked about it, specifically if he had been told to do the homage. He said it was entirely his idea and he thought it would be cool. Well, I'll be darned. Eric Larson, you're correct. It was cool. Then I heard from my buddy Bradley Null. He says, catching up with the podcast. Just reread the issue. I've never liked Lobo, and this is where I met him, and I don't like him here. No love for any Lobo from Bradley Man. I know I'm in the minority, and I have been for years. Other than him, this is a great issue, covered with the expected flair. Aw, well thank you, Bradley, I appreciate that. Then Mark Baker Wright from Black Rock's Toy Box chimed in on that same thought. He says, commenting here since my dislike of Lobo was actually called out on the podcast. Sorry, Shag. Well, this was obviously, quote, Lobo Light. It didn't make me appreciate him anymore. I simply don't care for this character and never will. Sorry to hear that, Mark. Everyone's allowed to be wrong sometimes. Then we hear from Matt the Chat. He says, great episode, you fragging bastages. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Heard from Patrick McMullen. He says, love the podcast. Thanks for all the hard work to make it happen. Then we heard from my buddy Tim Price. And you may remember, Tim and I have a special relationship. I do the podcast, and in return, he writes these really long dissertations, which I read to my daughter, which helps her sleep at night. So, Tim, thanks so much. You really pulled your weight this month. It really means a lot to me. So, Tim wrote, This issue is a favorite of mine. It gets extended cast members like Nort and Big Barda more attention. And boy, does Barda shine. She has so much potential, full-time in the team or solo. And Giffen DiMatteis did it so well. Establishes much better her role in the JLI, besides just being Mrs. Miracle. He goes on to say, Jean's fight with Lobo and using his shape-shifting was very effective. McGuire's art really sells it, especially stretching his torso to slam the bastage's head into the floor by having Jean's costume pull away from his body rather than looking painted on. Seeing Jean's red X in that panel is typical, amazing McGuire realism. Love, love, love. Oh, and Dimitri. Well, played for laughs at points, he's more and more becoming a great character. Standing up to Lobo and giving the fear of death does not indicate cowardness speech was a shiny moment and defines the kind of hero he is. A great example of how he became a favorite of mine. Then he poses a question for the JLI community, and I think this is an interesting one. He says, Dimitri losing his original armor. Was that solely a creative choice or was it an editorial pressure to get him out of a design that's basically a Soviet flag? Was that viewed as a detriment to American consumers, or even more so in the other markets like Europe or Canada? Having DC's premier superhero team featuring a hero from the current embodiment of oppression? I hope not, but something I just thought of. Yes, 30 years later, and I'm just now thinking of this. Sheesh. You know, that's a great question, Tim. I'd love to know if anyone's thought of this or has any answers on this. Just a little speculation on my part. It may have just come down to artist's choice, because if you look at the original Rocket Red armor, which is, by the way, is my absolute favorite. I love that armor. Uh, it's kind of boxy. It's almost like a Transformer. You know, sorry, Rob. And so it may have been that they just wanted to draw something less boxy, something a little more uh, flexible, emotive. I'm not really sure. Uh, I'd love, again, I'd love to hear y'all's feedback on the Rocket Red armor and why y'all think the change may have happened. Then got a comment from a new listener, and I'm going to slaughter your name, so I sincerely apologize. Uerton Vieira do Carmo. He's from our Brazil embassy. Awesome. Thank you, Uerton, for listening. He left us a comment, and he says he doesn't speak English very well, but he loves the podcast. Very fun to hear. Oh, thank you, Uerton. I really, really appreciate that. Then heard from my buddy Adam Ackerman from our Denmark embassy, and uh, <laughs> he's still in the mode where he's writing haikus, so he wrote one about JLI number 16. It says, code name Wayne Bruce Wayne. Bialya a coup de main. Scott Free, where in space? Thank you, Adam. Really appreciate that. 
Got a comment from Morgan Sowell. He says, in the last episode, you were talking about Mr. Miracle's mask and how it works. Check out pro wrestler Funny Bone. And he included a picture of this guy. And he goes, that's not makeup. It's some kind of latex or something, and the whole face peels off as one piece, like paint. It looks a lot like how McGuire draws Mr. Miracle's mask. And, folks, you got to Google this. Google wrestler Funny Bone or whatever you got to take to Google it, and you'll see this mask the guy wears. And he's right. It does look a lot like – and not the design. It's not red and yellow, but but just the way the mask works and how it fits around the mouth and the eyes and everything, it's a lot like the way McGuire draws Mr. Miracle's mask to be so fit to the face. Really interesting. Thank you, Morgan. Heard from Gary Paul from our England embassy, and uh, he was kind enough to share with me a photo of his new trade paperback. He got Justice League International Part 1. It's a hardcover printed by Eagle Moss. Oh, it's gorgeous. Now, these things, keep in mind the Eagle Moss stuff's uh, available in the UK. And then we heard from Graham Cannon. He said, just discovered your podcast and I'm now reading along with a JLI omnibus. Keep up the amazing work. Aw, thanks, Graham. I really appreciate that. He pointed out a suggestion for a potential in-stock trades promotion, which I thought was cool. It's a trade paperback entitled Batman, the Cat and the Bat by Fabian Nicieza, who we talked about earlier this episode, and also drawn by Kevin McGuire. How cool is that? That's probably worth picking up, folks. Then we got a comment from Diana Pimlot, uh, obviously a friend of Rob Williams from last episode. She says, nice to hear you, Rob, and learn all about the Justice League, for which I am out of my league. <laughs> Thank you, Diana. Then heard from Ward Hill Terry, it was another well-done issue by the creative team. Looks great. Can't remember when I read this, but I am not and never was a fan of Lobo. Then he says about our guest Rob Williams, he says, Thanks for sharing the pictures of your classroom. Congratulations on finding a depiction of fire that is suitable. Amazing man rules. Then I heard from my buddy Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy. He says, These are the comments of the Irish Embassy. It's ongoing mission to discuss the latest episode of the JLI Bwahaha podcast, to try and inject the usual wacky humor in my comments that the JLI series was known for, and to boldly comment where no commenter has gone before. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. I really appreciate that. He always leads off with some great jokes or plays along with my dorky jokes. He says, This issue was my first introduction to Lobo, who may become a bit one note after a number of years, but was an excellent antagonist to bring in when done sparingly. Alan Grant had some great fun with the character in the Acronym Legion and Demon series before setting him up in his own series, which probably was the downfall for the character. He was better as part of an ensemble or as a guest star than in his own series because the stories became a bit repetitive. You know, I think you're probably right on that, Jimmy. And he says, McGuire was excellent here. The sneer on Guy Gardner's face in the last page proclaiming, I'm back, had a touch of menace that really emphasized that the old guy was back in place. Then we heard from Paul Wildenberger. If you remember last episode, we talked a little bit about baby names and trying to name them after superheroes. Uh, he says, when I found out our first child was going to be a boy, I knew that one of his names was going to be Bruce. My dad's name is Bruce, and that is my middle name. My wife and I talked about using a name from her family as well. It struck me that we should use my wife's stepfather's middle name to honor him as well. His middle name is Wayne. <laughs> That's right. To honor both sides of my family, my son would be named Bruce Wayne Wildenberger. For some reason, my wife was against the idea. Then he says, for the record, the PG-13 version of Lobo is the one I prefer. Call me a prude, but the 90s version was a little too extreme for my tastes. Totally understand, Paul. I have love in my heart for probably both. I think I like the PG-13 version better. Uh, I do appreciate some of the 90s, you know, bastard version of Lobo. I just think there's room in our hearts for both. All right, as I'm winding down on some of the comments here, I do need to say that the comments above that I was talking about, many of them were full to the brim on that discussion about voting between Monitor Duty and Character Spotlight. Sincerely appreciate all the feedback you guys gave. I, I didn't read it here on the show, obviously, because the discussion's done, but want to thank each of you for doing that. And also, there's several people who left comments that only talked about the vote. So I want to give a shout-out to those folks by name. Thank you so much for the folks who left comments. Richard Matsumoto, Brad Dade. 
David Ace Gutierrez, Dial C for Comet, Boston Moss, Michael Ridge, Jeff Pollier, Brian Rosen, Professor Alan Quarterbin, Willie Yarbrough, Sean Ross, Diablo Frank, Kichi Baker, and Moz, who goes by Mozinger1978. Thank you guys for your comments. I'm sorry they didn't get read specifically on the show, but again, they were specific to the vote. All right, folks, this is where we take a second to thank everyone who shared this show on their social media timeline, on Facebook and Twitter. Again, I, I say this every month. It's a long list of names. I get it. I knew that. However, these folks really helped. They showed the support. They promoted the show. They're the reason a lot of you folks have even found this show is because you saw it on social media. So it's important to me that we recognize each one of these individuals and our community continues to grow, folks. This time we're looking at well over 80 names, people who helped promote last episode. Wow. So my deep personal thanks go out to Aaron Head Moss, Andrew in Belfast, Andy Capellish, BJ Mendelson, Bill Beer, Birds of Prey Podcast, Brian Yardley, Cash Flag, Charlton Hero, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Christopher Warden, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Comic Reflections, Corey Riley, Dale Russell, David Gallagher, no idea who that guy is, DC in the 80s, Debbie Rangel, Debster 70, Del Trabal, Derek William Crabb, Dr. Ange, Frederico Hernandez, H-O-C-O-F, Jack Dower, Jamie Gamble, Jared West, Jared Albrecht, the Yard Sale Artist, Jay Powers, Jeff Messer, and his Geek Brain Popcast, Jeffrey Brown, Jennifer Schwartz, Jeremiah Parker, Jonathan Brown, Justice's First Dawn, Keechee Baker, Con L, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Longbox Crusade, Longbox of Darkness, Luke Dobb, Mark Lax, Martin Gray, Masters of the Universe cast, Matthias McBride, Matt the Chat, Max Romero, and his It's Plastic Man account. Miff, who goes by Mr. Cali, Mystery CCG, Paul Kine, Pietro Blaxamoff, Professor Alan Quarterbin, Ray Allison, Richard Field, Rob Kelly and his legion of Twitter handles such as Film and Water Podcast, Mashcast, Superman Movie Minute, Treasury Cast, and Pod Dylan, Rob Wade, Rob Williams, our guest last episode, and his accounts including Generation X-Wing Podcast and Outer Rim Rookie, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ryan Blake, Ryan Daly, Scott X, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Ciscoid, Star Wars Toys Ontario, Superstitious and Cowardly, a Batman podcast, The 108th Sage, Tim Price, Tim Rooney, Tim Witt, Trash Bin of Humanity, Warlock Thanos podcast, Willie Yarbrough, and Zoom Yukonori. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, folks. And this community of JLI fans we're building continues to grow, and you guys are fantastic. Now, if I've forgotten or if I missed anybody, I am terribly sorry. It was probably Rob Williams' fault. Just drop me a note and let me know. I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. So please keep those cards and letters coming. Our website is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. You can leave comments in the show post there, or you can go to our Facebook page, which is Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast. Our Twitter handle is JLI Podcast. And of course, our email is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Rob Williams for helping me cover JLI number 18. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback from that episode. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll see if David has got his Green Lantern ring to charge. Though, how he's going to do that without a real Green Lantern battery is beyond me. Rocketed as a baby from the doomed planet Krypton, young Kal-El was found by a kindly couple and raised as Clark Kent. He discovered that he possessed powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men, and thanks to the upbringing he received from the Kents, he vowed to use those powers to help all mankind. This, in a nutshell, 
is the origin of Superman, and while the specific details have changed over the years, the overall idea of the origin has remained the same. My name is Michael Bailey, and I host a podcast called It All Comes Back to Superman. It All Comes Back to Superman is the monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, and since it is Superman's 80th birthday in 2018, I thought it would be fun to look at how Superman's origin has changed and evolved over the years in an eight-part series I'm calling Superman, Superman Many, Many Lives, Lives Many, origins. Many Origins. Many Lives, Many Origins will go decade by decade and see how the Man of Steel's backstory was portrayed in the comics, on the radio, on television, and in the movies. How has Krypton changed over the decades? What about the Kents? I'll also be looking at the origins of some of my favorite members of Superman's rogues gallery, such as Lex Luthor, Brainiac, and Metallo. Superman. Superman. Many lives, many origins. An examination of the backstory of the Man of Steel to celebrate his 80th year. This eight-part series starts on April 30th, 2018. You can find It All Comes Back to Superman and the other shows in the Fortress of Bailey Dude podcasting network at www.fortressofbaileytude.com. Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Give Me That Star Trek. A new episode every month, only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. Alright folks, we're back from break, and yes, uh, it does appear that David is back. I, I think I see a bit of a green glow around him. Did you, did you get your ring charged? Did you save the, save the world? Once again, the world is saved, thanks to... David Gallagher. Duh. Green Lantern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. Perfect. Well, thank you, dude. Same thing. How come Hal Jordan gets the title of Green Lantern? It's it's not like Guy Gardner doesn't call himself. Yeah, it's weird, right? Hal Jordan is the one who gets the name. Right. Like, it makes me so mad. It's not like Hal Jordan, Green Lantern. Green Lantern, Hal Jordan. It's Guy Gardner. It's like Green Lantern, John Stewart, Guy Gardner. Like, come on, man. The only other one that gets to wear the badge of just being called Green Lantern without their name is Kyle. Kyle. Kyle yeah. Kyle Rand. That's because they had to get Hal out of the picture for a while because he was just hogging up the frame. So, uh, Well, if you're if you're a reader of a certain age, we could say Alan Scott. Oh, yeah. I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, a reader of a certain age, you would be <laughs> <laughs> about 80. Yeah. <laughs> My dad used to read some Green Lantern comics when he was a kid, so that'd be about right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. All right. So... All right, folks. Well, my thanks, very, very sincere thanks to David for appearing on this episode of the JLI Podcast. It's been an absolute blast having you here, man. Always a great time catching up with you. So uh, thank you for making the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love talking about Guy Gardner and Justice League International. In fact, I'm so jazzed. I'm now going to read Justice League International number 20. Awesome. Perfect. Then it has done its job. Anytime you read a comic and you desperately want to read the next issue, it did its job. That's how that works, folks. All right, David, why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the interwebs? 
I am on the interwebs at davidgallagher.com. My studio website is bottledlightning.com. It's got a cool little hyphen between the bottled and the lightning. Own Living Boy is available at olbcomic.com. Uh, you can find all of my books on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local bookstore or comic shop. And I'm on Twitter at, at David Gallagher. Keep your eyes out, folks, for that Only Living Boy omnibus coming in July. It's going to be awesome. All right, folks, now come back next month when we cover Justice League International number 20, which David is about to go read. And remember, it is Ty Templeton's first issue, Hot Dog. And we'll have another guest host to help cover the issue with. Who will it be? Come on, folks, you've heard enough of these things. You know how this works. You're going to have to wait to find out till next month. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm David Gallagher. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something something of it? Folks, we're not. Don't worry. We are going to talk about JLI right after this podcast promo break. All right. Podcast promo. We should sing what the podcast promo is going to be. Podcast promo. We'll do is we should say it really, really slowly, <laughs> and then you should say one make something over. Wasting all this good material and no one's ever going to hear because that's so freaking good. You're going to have a whole hour of just you being funny. <laughs> A word.